Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. What's up, in-betweeners? Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> sure. Right. What's going on, everybody? So this week, we've got quite a bit to talk about. We're going to be covering uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever because uh, it came out this week. We watched it and we thought we'd uh, put out an episode, you know, just reviewing uh, our thoughts and, you know, uh, having a good discussion about the, you know, just what we consumed and what we what we thought about it overall. So, yeah, so that's going to be good. Um, we do have a little bit of comics news that we were going to try to jump into uh, because it was kind of a sad and big week in comics for whatever reason. Um, you know, uh, tragedies. Uh, I, I've heard that they've been, that they happen in threes. So for whatever reason, uh, this this weekend or this the past couple of weeks in particular have been uh, a pretty sad one for comics because we lost three pretty big names. Um, yeah, Drew, you you want to you know introduce or let let our good listeners know uh, who passed? So. Yeah, this week we lost Kevin O'Neill, Carlos Pacheco, and Kevin Conroy. So Kevin O'Neill is an artist who's probably most famous for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but he also did a lot of good stuff with 2000 AD and uh, uh, Martial Law, which is a pretty iconic superhero work uh, from the 80s and, and 90s. Uh, Carlos Pacheco, artist who did a lot of things for Marvel and DC primarily. Um, mm. I think the stuff that he did that really stands out to me is probably Avengers Forever and uh, this JLA, JSA graphic novel called Virtue and Vice. But yeah, he's done work on a lot of the big properties throughout both companies like he's done some superman stuff x-men comics fantastic four he's pretty and, prolific in a very like specific era of time that sticks out in my mind as like i want to say that that was around the era that you know we we me and you like just have a lot of reverence for um so he was a artist that was floating around around a lot in that period of time so yeah yeah definitely yeah. in the late 90s and early 2000s exactly and kevin conroy of course is the voice of batman from batman the animated series and many other related spin-offs and video games and things like that uh yeah. I mean, he's pretty much batman in my mind so anytime i read anytime i read a good batman comic it's his voice i hear in my mind yeah yeah he uh he nailed it and he's been doing that voice for like years and years and you know anybody who who's born past a certain age might not uh might not have quite the same feelings uh you know just because you know they weren't growing up when the animated series was coming out on a weekly basis or whatever so for all i know maybe their batman is uh you know the guy from uh twilight or or, <laughs> or christian ben bale Affleck 
or Christian yeah, Bale. Ben Affleck. <laughs> ben Affleck's voice is the voice I hear in my mind whenever I read a bad Batman comic. <laughs> ben Affleck's the voice I hear in my mind whenever I want to gouge my eyes out. <laughs> when I stare into the abyss. <laughs> yeah. Let that be a lesson to you, kids. The the resounding voice of madness is Ben Affleck's voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a chance that even younger people might recognize Kevin Conroy's Batman yeah. because he's, he's continued to do Batman's voice in other things, including yeah. uh, video games like Batman, the Arkham games. Yeah, absolutely. Those games, and and then he was in a bunch of the animated <laughs> Injustice. Movies. Yeah, I think he yeah. did Batman's voice in that game too. Yeah, yeah. Even though the series ended a long time ago, like you know, Kevin Conroy was the guy that they kept going back to um, in in multiple iterations of Bat animated versions of Batman. You know, so um, he had a good long life, and you know, it's a it's a shame, but I'm glad that he was able to be Batman for as long as he was. And, you know, the guy is enshrined and, you know, entombed forever in our minds and in our hearts. Dude is legendary, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have any thoughts about Kevin O'Neill? We kind of moved on quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, Yeah, it's like you said. The main thing that he's probably known for is uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But, you know, he's... He's a terrific artist, and he's got a very uh, idiosyncratic style that you would never, you would never mistake it for anybody else's. When you see his work, you know it's his work. So, um, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's definitely an, an example where he might not have had a lot of uh, you know, whatever you might consider mainstream work, but. I do think his work was work that inspired a lot of people and certainly left a deep impact on a lot of comics artists outside of our uh, typical scope. Yeah. I was just going to say, I was reading an obituary uh, about him earlier this week. And one of the things I learned is that when he was working at 2000 AD, he was one of the people who first fought uh, management in order to get uh, the credits uh, printed in the story so that you know people could identify the writers and, and artists and things so like that that step for creators rights something that uh you know i think speaks a lot to what he valued you know like he wasn't just yeah. a good artist but he, he also helped his peers and the people who came after him quite a bit yeah that yeah it speaks volumes of his character beyond just his talent as an artist which i think you know i mean for a lot of artists who make it to a certain point in their career they don't necessarily have to think about future artists you know right and for him to make it to that place and still think about uh you know what it's like for struggling artists and how and what is fair for them essentially like mm -hmm. uh, like again that just says volumes of him as a person and what he cared about and who he cared about you know right so, right you know i i, I tip my hat to him <laughs>
Yeah. <sighs> All right. Shall so, we talk about Wakanda forever? Let's 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 uh yeah let's get into it. So the te- first teaser came out not too long ago, uh, or you know a while back, and uh, you know it's been a slow build up until the release here. Um, I guess it's only fair to ask, but you know, uh, what were your expectations coming into the movie, Drew? Like what what were your feelings after watching that trailer, um, and how did they shape those expectations? Mm-hmm. So I think I think I thought I was immune to Marvel movie hype until I saw that first teaser trailer that they released, the one that mm. mashed up No Woman No Cry with All Right. And uh, yeah, I, I mean I was gonna watch this movie regardless of what the trailer looked like. I, I was just gonna check it out, but I think seeing that trailer definitely primed me in a way that I don't think any other trailer in recent Marvel history has really gotten me particularly excited. Mm. Like, I think the trailer for Love and Thunder looked pretty fun. It made the movie feel like what I would expect it to be after seeing Ragnarok. But the most of, most other trailers for Marvel movies are just kind of like whatever to me, you know, like, yeah, it's another Marvel movie. Kind of know what to expect. Like I, I saw the trailer for Quantumania recently, and <laughs> that's just yeah. kind of a a shrug for me. Like I'll still watch it because I'm a yeah. sucker, but <laughs> you know I, I can't say that I'm going in there with high expectations or a sense of anticipation or anything. But yeah. watching the yeah. that first uh, Black Panther trailer, uh, Wakanda Forever trailer, yeah that that did get me pretty hyped up. Like that was just a really artful, artfully done trailer with the music and everything. It was just, just enough to really tease and tantalize me and get me excited to check out the movie. Um, Yeah. Got me, got me primed for it, man. What were your thoughts going in? I'm probably not too different from, from you just in that uh, I might be more of a Marvel drone than you are. So I was probably going to be more blindly uh, inclined to to enjoy it without any without putting any serious thought to it. If I had to be perfectly honest, yeah, like I I saw the trailer. I thought it was tastefully done. I thought the music was good. I didn't. Uh, I mean, I knew that the one the the one core part of the song was no woman no cry uh by uh bob marley but i certainly didn't well i think it's bob marley anyway so yeah yeah that was a cover by an artist that i wasn't that i had never heard of up to that point but i i think the singer in that trailer is named thames yeah yeah and uh but i didn't even know that uh kendrick lamar was uh the i guess the the other song that was mashed up with it so yeah. after watching after you you mentioned it, I did go and listen to the original song. Um, what's it called? Uh, the Kendrick Lamar song. All right. Yeah, I, I did go and listen to All Right, and yeah, man, it's a good song. And uh, they the compilation of those two was really effective. You know, super evocative, super effective. Yeah, like I said, uh, I think I knew that because of 
the passing of Chadwick Boseman, this was already going to be kind of an emotional thing. I, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I didn't know Chadwick Boseman, obviously, but it's, it's just one of those things where it's, it's, there is something sad about just how it all played out for him to, to popularize this character and this work to, to the masses and to not be able to see it through to completion there. Yeah. There's, something wistful about that yeah yeah and that trailer definitely acknowledges that sense of loss yeah yeah but it then it it lends a this aura of uh gravity to it or gravitas to it and i think kind of prepares you to go into the movie uh expecting or you know just wondering how they're going to handle this emotional content Absolutely, because a lot of the times when it, it's 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 the nexus between like the real life tragedy of the passing of this real man and uh and the I guess the triviality of like fictional stories and yeah. when when you don't do those right uh it. It, 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 and in a worst case scenario, it feels like a cheap cash grab, or it feels insincere. And at worst, or at best, it's it's you know uh, a lasting tribute to uh, everything that you know. In this case, that Chadwick Boseman like worked for. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's you, I, I don't know if it's a tribute to necessarily his career, but at least it's a tribute to his contribution to to this character and yeah. uh, its role in you know the Marvel U- Cinematic Universe overall. Yeah, so, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So I I guess now that you're mentioning it, that that does make me. I think there was a part of me in the back of my mind that was. I don't know if I was bracing myself or if I was hesitant to, yeah, like there, there was just a part of me that wondered whether they would be able to stick the landing, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I think I wasn't as concerned about that because just from what I'd heard uh, in terms of hearing what Ryan Coogler had to say leading up to the movie, I felt like he had a lot of respect for Chadwick Boseman and probably would do his best to you know, do something that wasn't going to be too cringy or anything like that. Yeah. I was going to say that there was this uh, official Black Panther podcast that came out, uh, I don't know, maybe a week or so ago, a week or two ago. And I typically don't really pay too close attention to things like that uh, official podcast from a movie studio because, you know, it just feels like some some PR machine stuff that I don't really need in my life. But the thing that caught my attention was that Tanahasi Coates was the person uh, hosting the podcast and the first episode, which came out a week or two before the movie, it was Tanahasi Coates interviewing Ryan Coogler. And that definitely piqued my interest because mm. as uh, you listeners may or may not know, Coates is a writer that I have a lot of respect and love for. He started off uh, writing like journalistic stuff. Like he had written some uh, socio-political essays on The Atlantic and he's written some 
books as well. But in terms of comics, he actually was the writer of Black Panther for a couple of years. He wrote, uh, you know, a 50-issue run that I would consider one of the top two definitive Black Panther stories uh, or runs alongside the Priest run. And Coates has also written Captain America for Marvel uh, pretty recently. So he's he's someone whose work I, I really do like, and uh, I've I've read his stuff. Uh, maybe I'm not a prolific reader of his, but the stuff of his I I have read. You know, it's always either entertained me in terms of a co- of his comics and his uh, other essays and stuff. Definitely make me think. He's a smart dude, and yeah, yeah. him interviewing Ryan Coogler was pretty good conversation that I think uh, anyone who is interested in Wakanda forever uh, and, you know, kind of like the behind the scenes sort of stuff, like that's a definite must listen because they talk about quite a bit of things like uh, Coates talked to Coogler about like how he got into Black Panther, uh, the first movie and like the things that influenced him in, in preparing for the, uh, writing the story and stuff, what influenced him uh, for the second movie. Talked a little bit, quite a bit actually, about uh, Chadwick Boseman too. And I feel like it, that listening to that podcast was the the only time I've ever, ever been listening to a podcast where I felt emotional because when when Coates asked Coogler about Boseman, like there was a moment where you could tell that Coogler had to really gather himself, you know, like he got emotional on the recording and it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, unex- I wasn't really expecting it, but I think I just ended up like feeling his emotion on that podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was pretty enlightening stuff, man. Um, I don't know if there's a whole lot more I can say about it, but uh, there were a couple things that, that did stand out in terms of what I got out of it or like some of the takeaways. And like one of the things that Kugler shared in that interview was how much Chadwick Boseman put into the Black Panther character. Because uh, he he took on that role in the Civil War movie, right? So that was before Kugler was even on board. And mm-hmm. and uh, Kugler talked about how Boseman was somebody who really put a lot of thought into the character from things like how he would carry himself, the, the accent, how he talks, and the nobility of the character, right? And how even, uh, like, in a way, he was, like, curating T'Challa before Coogler and the other writers for Black Panther were even there. And even throughout the movie, when they were filming the first one, Coogler said that Bozeman had a pretty high amount of influence in terms of, like, the tone and and feel for the character you know like he was really serious about what he was doing like it wasn't just some job to him but you know a work that he was putting a lot of himself into mm-hmm. yeah that's uh that's good uh you know background information to have i i didn't check out the podcast myself but you did send it to me and um it that is the kind of thing that i do get into for uh you know a lot of the media that i uh um uh take in you know so yeah um at at some point i wanted i do have an interest in checking it out i was always 
I was um, I was always one of those people that would buy the DVDs just and you know listen to the commentaries. Make yeah, make an effort to listen to the commentary. So it's, it's yeah. stuff like that that uh, really gives you, I guess, that extra added appreciation for their work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, again, at at, at the end of the day, there's. I guess there's a quality to it where if you take a step back, it really does feel like, oh, um, you know, at the end of the day, these are just people that are just kind of pretending or, you know, they're acting, right? But uh, it's 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 also, you know, about art and it's about uh, the commitment to the, I guess, the quality of the craft. And mm-hmm. it, it says something that uh, Chadwick Boseman just really took it upon himself to uh take this character and elevate him because you know i i think this might just be an assumption on my part but i I think it's fair to say that prior to like the movie um you know there was a pretty limited knowledge uh just amongst the masses of who black panther was and when that first movie came out it was it was kind of a phenomena, you know? Yeah, totally. Everybody he blew up. It. Yeah. So, and like, to the point where I don't know, I don't know how Marvel does a lot of their uh, business practices. I, I don't know how, what their workshopping looks like, but I have a feeling that after that, it, it almost felt like the standard for them was we want to make movies where you know, all these other characters are going to be like Black Panther to some degree, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, like, it certainly felt that way with, like, something like Shang-Chi. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it did. It did. Yeah. yeah. So. I all did right. also hear that, uh, like, a couple other things I want to mention about that interview, though. Uh, like, Kugler was talking about how he read a ton of black panther comics uh when he was preparing to write and direct the first film Mm. and he said that as he read all those works as he read all those comics he realized that there were a handful of characters who he enjoyed uh reading their interactions with t'challa and two of those two characters that jumped out to him were killmonger and namor and at the Mm. time uh, when they were making that movie, the first one, you may remember that the rights, the movie rights to Namor were kind of complicated, and yeah. he, he didn't think that. I don't think that uh, Marvel Studios was able to use him, so that's probably why uh, he didn't, you know, make have any references to to Namor in, in that one. But uh, mm. he, Kugler said that he knew that that uh, if it was ever possible, he would definitely want to do a Namor story with T'Challa and and have them interact because you know I'm sure he read the the Hickman stuff right like that's that's like the grade A Namor stuff when we think yeah. of the best Namor yeah. comics I, I think like all the all the solo comics he's had it doesn't really feel like any of them are as good as what Hickman did with him in New Adventures yeah it's kind of a shame as someone who's a fan of Namor as a character, uh, I'd oh, you love Namor, dude! Don't, I do. don't undersell I do. your fan, your fanboyness. 
he's he's a character that I have a lot of uh personal affection for and the thing about it is i recognize that there aren't a lot of good namor comics and there's there's comics that they that probably get brought up a lot for whatever reason like the one that comes to mind is the john byrne namor uh i think when i was growing up that was probably the the most uh recognizable or notable uh namor comic that was out there but if i had to be perfectly honest it probably wasn't very good i mean john byrne in and of himself is a bad writer so <laughs> i don't really have too much faith that uh you know that his run on namor was uh uh a, an, an exceptionally good one um, you never read his namor when you were a kid i didn't have access to it you know uh so i think the only thing that I knew about it was the only thing I knew about Namor as a kid I got from the the trading cards and because that was Namor's status quo at the time I grew up thinking that Namor like although being a king of Atlantis also ran a multi-billion dollar company <laughs> Yeah that never made sense to me man why would Namor have a multi-million multi-billion dollar corporation and why would he have a long ponytail like that that was always uh <laughs> questionable man like i didn't get that the hair was always the thing <laughs> the, the hair definitely bothered me it was yeah. some really poor design choices made right there and it was ugly <laughs> yeah and the fact that we would have namor putting on a suit and doing work as a CEO in a high rise or something. There's just something about it that doesn't really fit my conception of the character. I think even as a kid, I, I just thought it was, it looked weird and boring, you know, like it didn't look, it didn't look like a comic that I wanted to read when I was young. And yeah. I don't want to read it as an adult <laughs> now too. <laughs> well, in its defense and it's, it's not even a real defense. I, I would say that, I do think there's something to the idea if if someone wanted to do a comic about how, you know, every few years Namor gets pissy about, you know, the surface dwellers polluting the oceans and he rises up only to come to some sort of compromise, only to in a few years after that get pissy again and try again and just to repeat this cycle. If they wanted to do a story where he was like, okay, if if the uh, the halls of power, uh, if the way to wield power is through money, if that's the only thing that talks, then that's what I'm going to do. Um, then I just okay. find it hard to believe that they would let him run a business after he's declared war on the entire surface world multiple times, uh, you know, basically attacked New York City a bunch of times and drowned a bunch of people and you know, it it'd just be weird to to let this. He's kind of like, that's I guess, true. Comparable to a the leader of a you know, a terrorist cell. Ter yeah, terrorist, a, a really big terrorist cell. And well, but what I was gonna say was, um, <laughs> I guess that's the one aspect of Namor that's hard to reconcile is that he he has this love-hate relationship with mankind because every couple of years he turns heel and then 
you know, he finds a way to get back in their good graces before he does it all over again. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, I think that's many a things, thing. dude. He's many yeah, things. It, it's a thing that you can't reconcile. I mean, it's certainly funny in the context of him running a multi-billion dollar corporation. But <laughs> if you think about it in, in terms of just his existence as a whole, like it's, it, it makes his entire being just a problematic one, you know? Because you really have to bend over backwards to be like, why hasn't anyone killed this guy yet? <laughs> <laughs> why haven't they just shot him with an assassin's bullet on the grassy knoll? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's it's the machinery of superhero fiction, man. Yeah, it's comics, things, man. <laughs> yeah, these, these comics have been around so long with so many different people yeah. creating them that they're going to just be all over the place and when you really step back and look at them yeah if you try to if you try to take these long-lived characters like these characters that have been around for decades and Namor has been around longer than the average superhero right mm. because he was he's been around since he's like one of the first superheroes yeah, like on, on early Marvel 40s, and... I think yeah and uh yeah if you take like Actually, I just checked. He he debuted in 1939. But if yeah, Ooh. if you take all of his appearances and you treat them like some sort of biography, yeah, it's not gonna make sense. Exactly. And and if if Namor were, were real, he would have been in some sort of safe house in Jalalabad, and SEAL Team Six would have went in there and <laughs> killed him ages ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They would have come in the dead of night and they would have shot him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's but real life kids <laughs> this is comics yeah so apparently he can run a multi-billion dollar corporation in spite <laughs> of the fact that he is a global terrorist yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're just giving out these multi-billion dollar corporations to anybody yeah I, well i mean i guess that always made sense to me because you know he's a king so he just had resources he was rich you know but yeah, yeah, that's true. Anyways. That's true. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I guess that's as good a segue as any to just jump into, you know, just our general thoughts of the movie as a whole. How's that sound? Yeah. So some spoiler free impressions. Yeah. This is the the Mylar sealed uh, pristine version of our uh impressions of the movie so as to preserve it for those of you who haven't seen it yet yeah so you want to start yeah sure uh if i had to be perfectly honest it's uh it was a really fun movie man i i no uh, fun might not be the right word i think i think i have pretty mixed feelings on it there there are some things that didn't necessarily like look too great for me uh but i think overall i i enjoyed it i i overwhelmingly enjoyed it more than you know whatever little things nitpicky things did uh you know i did find about it yeah i i think it's uh you know it's a movie that takes place a few years after well okay I'll, I'll save that for the spoiler part but yeah I, it was a good movie it had a lot of commentary it had a lot to say about just 
nations and colonialism or like i guess the uh uh the after effects of colonialism as well as the mm -hmm. just how that i guess the the burden of that sin carries forward into how these nations uh look at themselves moving forward and how they treat other nations so it's i i was thinking this while i was watching the film but it's it's something where i remember when we first watched civil war it felt like that was something that was different from your average marvel film because it was something that was akin to a political thriller like the closest that you'd ever see to a political thriller in a marvel film uh, wait are you thinking of across... the winter soldier or civil war oh, winter soldier sorry okay winter soldier yeah. winter soldier yeah yeah but um but watching this movie i really did feel that it continues in that tradition because it really is a pretty layered uh piece of work that you can really approach from several different angles and find quite a bit to to read into it and quite a bit to take away from it so i i have a higher regard and uh high respect for the final product of what it was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what about you yeah i'm gonna say i loved it man and i i know yeah. that it's not a perfect movie by any means not even by mcu blockbuster standards but what i will say is that this movie man it, it it definitely made me feel things and to me that counts for a lot you know like it it functions yeah. as both an entertaining product but it also functions as this loving tribute to chadwick boseman <laughs> and you can <laughs> tell that the the people who were making the movie were you know they were working they had out that in mind yeah they were working out their feelings in the work that they were making and even though it's it's this massive commercial consumerist product yeah meant to be taken in by the masses i, I felt like there was still enough uh like genuine sincerity in it that mm. was able to affect me and and that that's pretty rare in in an mcu movie you know like most of the time I'll watch something and, you know, there are elements that I enjoy, maybe I, some ideas here and there that I appreciate, but I feel like it's pretty rare that a movie, an MCU movie just hits me with emotion straight off the bat and, and carries it throughout the movie. Mm. And I felt like there wasn't really anything egregiously stupid about it. Like you uh, alluded to, some things not looking great to you and i i do think that some of the visual effects were kind of lackluster yeah uh, yeah i i did like their interpretation of namor he's pretty different well not i think the core of the fundamental character of the character in the movie is very similar to my conception of namor but the um. it's just the uh elements that you know, like the trappings around him and his origin and stuff like that's a little bit different. But the core fundamental element of, you know, a really arrogant king who leads his people against the surface, you know, that 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 pretty much 
is captured very well, I think. Uh, and, and maybe maybe you have different thoughts. Uh, we haven't really discussed Namor uh, in the movie in great detail yet, so uh, yeah. you may you you may not fully agree with me. Uh, but that's that's how I felt about about their interpretation of it. And you know, I'm sure that with the passage of time and the chance to think a little bit more about the movie, or maybe even listen to what other intelligent people have to say about it, maybe I'll find even more flaws in the movie. But for now, yeah. I'd definitely say that uh, I found more to love about it than to, you know, be caught up in trying to nitpick it to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, no, I love I it. I totally for, agree with that. Yeah, I love it for its emotional capacity, even if it does have some technical imperfections. Like to me, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the best moments of the movie are all of the personal character moments. A lot of the the more quiet moments where they're not, you know, punching stuff and whatnot. Yeah, um, I think I think like most Marvel movies that we've come to expect with the formula, right? Like there's always going to be that that big battle. Uh, and you know stuff is gonna turn into what we expect to see in every major MCU movie, and I, th- I think that does hold true uh, for Wakanda Forever. But yeah, I think it it still gives me that emotional element to cling to, and and that's what affected me and and carried me through it all. Yeah, understandable. Was there anything else that you wanted to? discuss or or bring up in the uh spoiler free portion of it or did you want to start breaking it down into its uh nuts and bolts and bits and pieces uh yeah we can go ahead and go into full spoilers if you want okay so from this moment on you are good listeners uh we we've given you our general impressions we we've had you know we're pretty favorable towards it, but from this moment on, we're going to talk about things in, in detail. So if you haven't seen it yet, so by all means, uh, you know, put a pause, put a, put a pin in it right here, uh, go watch it and come back and listen to us. Or if you don't care, then by all means, uh, you know, stick with us through it. Um, you know, what, what have you just listen to us. That's all that I care about. Uh, I don't. I don't care if you're deeply in debt. I don't care if uh, you know your house is burning down. I just want you to listen to us. <laughs> what if they do that thing where they play our audio track on the on their podcast player, but they put us on mute, so we get the play, but they don't actually listen to us. I mean, I'll take the play because. We need it and we want it, but there's a part of me that's simmering deep down in my soul that wants them to hear me and actually acknowledge my words. <laughs> <laughs> it's not enough that I just have it on paper. It's got to be more more than just a superficial accounting of it. Yeah, yeah. You want to hit people yeah. in the soul? I. I don't even need them to be emotionally moved. I, if they were tied down and forced to listen to me, I would be satisfied with that. Okay, okay. <laughs> you could be like that dude from Sounds of the Lambs who just throws somebody into the well and, you know. It puts the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose again. Exactly. 
it puts the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose again. <laughs> what was that dude's name? Buffalo Bill? Uh, Buffalo Bill, yeah. Uh, I mean, he had another name, but I, you know, I'm pretty sure he will forever be immortalized as Buffalo Bill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, let's uh, let's 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 break it down, shall we? Yeah. What What did you want to talk about first, man? What What was uh something in the movie that stood out to you that you've been chomping at the bit to discuss on the podcast? Well, that's a tough one because I feel like there are just so many elements of this movie to discuss uh, that I really I could reach out and grab any branch and uh, I'm pretty sure I could find something to say about it. But that being said, we, we do have a small list here and I think it's fine to go with that. We Let's, let's just start with something like the aesthetics. How's that sound? We, we did talk about it in our uh you know spoiler free review uh so and we didn't mention that you know there were some things about it that we weren't that could have been better um but yeah well, I, I think that's a good starting point as good a starting point as any so okay yeah um well, well i'll go first how's, how's that so yeah 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 i was gonna say that you know, for a big blockbuster, uh, um, you know, CG-generated superhero movies, I, I think there's a certain level of expectation that we have, and um, yeah, there are just points in the movie where, uh, like, some of the CG action didn't necessarily do it for me. Although I will say that there are like some other points that were just pretty marvelous. So, um, you know, I'll start with the bad just to rip that Band-Aid off first or, or the stuff that I didn't quite enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some scenes during, like, the big battles that we were watching where, um, you know, you see everyone flying around in these ships. And I remember one scene in particular where you see, um, uh, what's, what's Black Panther's sister's name? Um, Shuri? Yeah, Shuri. Yeah. You forgot her name, <laughs> I'm tired, man. Like, <laughs> I don't remember this stuff off the top of my head, but so Shuri is flying around in the ship and you see her in like the cockpit. And there was just something about how that looked that really, it really wasn't convincing. It, it, it For a multi-billion dollar studio, I, I kind of, I kind of would have expected that they would have made it look better, you know, because it, it, I don't know if there was like just a weird sheen to it or if there was well, it's it's probably not it probably doesn't have too much directly to do with the fact that they're a multi-million or multi-billion dollar studio but it's probably uh you know the overworked contractors that they're under yeah, to yeah. produce this stuff yeah to be fair that's that's probably the case is uh they were probably skimping on it and uh you know disney studios is notorious for pushing their um their artist to to just like ridiculous lengths to to get this done under budget at that yeah. so not only under yeah, budget, you know, but with uh severe time constraints from all the things yeah, that yeah. have been put out in various reports yeah so so i will say you know i don't necessarily blame the the artist for it because they did the best that they could right yeah but i do acknowledge i'm not gonna pretend that it looked great either 
you know it's, yeah uh, another thing in particular that i i didn't find visually appealing in, in terms of just their cg stuff was uh riri williams Ironheart armor uh hmm. there was something about that that it, it felt like it was a really good cosplay on some level <laughs> you know just just the texture of it and the build of it i don't i don't i can't put quite put my thumb on it but there was just when when she came out and she was in her full armored regalia there there was something the, about it that, the final version not the, the final version, version she yeah. had it when she was uh when they were in boston yeah even even that version, the the uh, preliminary version that she was using, that was all kind of uh, herky jerky or whatever, right? Like, I think I could at least tell myself that in the context of the story, it makes it made sense for that one not to look especially good because you know this was kind of the uh, the prototype version, so it it wasn't really super complete by any means. But by the time they rolled out, you know when the they they had built it up to this point and when she finally comes out in her armor like i uh yeah i i, I don't think it looked that great i i'm not even talking about the design i just mean like the the texturing or whatever they did to make it look like it could would fit in in their world there was just something about it that um were you underwhelmed sir i was underwhelmed i i was just about to say that but yeah i was underwhelmed by it mhm mhm yeah but that being said, I do think that there are things about this movie uh, that were pretty great, too. Um, the one scene that I think of is when they're going in Atlantis and uh, Shuri and Namor are essentially taking a tour of Atlantis. Or uh, it's not Atlantis. I Takal, I think they call it. Talokan? Talokan, yeah. yeah. So um, they're they're floating around and it's it was an interesting look there's like an almost ethereal quality to it where this is a mysterious place and it makes sense for it to have this sense of mystery and majesty to it and i do think that that was what they effectively communicated to us and oddly enough the first thing i thought of when i saw that scene was it made me think of aquaman with jason momoa and their take on Atlantis, which I don't know. Have you 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 still haven't seen Aquaman, right? Drew? Not in its entirety. I've seen parts of it on a plane ride, but I really saw it. Where were yeah, you flying never... to? <laughs> uh, SoCal. So it was like a really short plane ride. Not enough time to watch a full okay. movie. But uh, from what I did catch, I didn't care to see the rest of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Let me describe to you how they did their version of Atlantis or this underwater kingdom. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it almost felt like their version of Atlantis was like underwater Vegas because <laughs> it was just full of bright lights. Everything was super shiny and super saturated, almost overwhelmingly so to the, to the senses, you know? Yeah. And I, 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 I think I personally preferred this version of of uh, I, I don't know how an to underwater say it. society, underwater world. Yeah, exactly. It makes you sense know, that it would be a little darker because they're in the depths of the ocean. Exactly, exactly. I don't know why they would have neon lights 
and why everything would be so brightly lit. <laughs> you That's know? just for the convenience of the audience so the audience can see stuff. Because I've definitely seen people on Twitter uh, commenting or complaining about how the underwater city in Wakanda Forever is so murky that, you know, basically saying that it was a failure of world building because they couldn't see everything. Yeah, I don't uh I don't adhere to that logic. I liked it. I thought it yeah. was a good-looking world. I thought it was mysterious. It was something that evoked wonder and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, curiosity. So, and you know, these people's uh you know, being descended from uh well, I don't know if they were quite ancient peoples, but uh, they... It was like around the 1500s or something. Yeah, like it, it made sense that they would have a similar architectural aesthetic to, you know, what those peoples in that region were building at the time, um, you know, in terms of stone tools like i'm not an archaeologist I, I i'm being very like delicate about how i describe this without sounding this is this is about the most uh diplomatic that we'll ever hear albert on this podcast because he doesn't I'm want trying... to sound like an ignorant <laughs> yeah ego. well i i don't mind sounding ignorant in the sense that i don't know anything about architecture or histories or peoples but i don't want to sound ignorant in the in the sense that i'm gleefully imbibing in how ignorant <laughs> and and uh un, unknowledgeable i am about these things you know so so yeah so that is to say like i i don't know what specific time period they're necessarily trying to evoke but i do think that it's a version of the world that makes sense to me yeah, and in, in terms of another thing that I did enjoy about the look of the movie, um, and this is something that I feel Ryan Coogler might have taken a lesson from Black Panther 1 or the first Black Panther movie. And one of the things that I remember thinking about that movie was the very final scene of that movie uh, was this battle between Killmonger and Black Panther underground. Mm-hmm. and you know they're both wearing black costumes they're both underground and it's it's just a bunch of shiny lights and most of the time i i remember not knowing exactly what i was looking at like it wasn't the clearest thing yeah and in this movie the final battle that takes place actually ends up betweening uh, actually ends up between Shuri and Namor, and it happens in broad daylight yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in the daytime. So it's abundantly clear who's who and what's what. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I do think it did look better, but uh, the other thing I was going to say about that is it, it does make me think about the end of She-Hulk, uh, the, the streaming series, where at Are the very end of spoil She Hulk, <laughs> yeah, should, okay. should, I mean, I feel like okay, should I spoil it or can I spoil no, you, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, as long as the people are ready, they okay, can always okay, just okay. like skip forward a minute or yeah. two, okay, yeah, a minute or two sounds perfect. Um, but at the end of She, okay, skip, uh, the uh, uh, spoiling now, spoiling, activate. <laughs> <laughs> 
go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, at the end of She-Hulk, there's a point where at the uh, when she confronts, you know, the big bad of the show. Um, at, at that point, she pauses and she decides to break the fourth wall, and she goes and sees. You know, Kevin, their uh, their version of God. Uh, he, Kevin is this all-knowing, all-seeing being that runs their universe, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. she talks to Kevin, and one of the things that she says is, um, instead of having the battle at nighttime, where you know we're we're gonna play it against type, let's let's do this outdoors, let's do this in the daytime, and I think it was in that moment when I watched that scene in She-Hulk that. It, it's something that made me realize wait a minute <laughs> they do usually do a lot of these at night because <laughs> i i mean i i don't know if they just think it looks cooler or what but it's it's always in a pretty dark setting yeah so yeah so seeing this uh so short so soon after thinking about that in she hulk i was like oh i i actually do prefer this yeah uh, you know daytime setting to uh, two people in black costumes fighting in a dark cave underground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I would have said that anyways, but you know, uh, just generally speaking, uh, we'll, instead of having a bunch of Marvel movies where the battle takes place in some dimly lit or gloom gloomy setting, uh, mm-hmm. so that you know the the lasers really pop or whatever. Um, yeah, I prefer this to to that. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, who, yeah. who wouldn't? But it, um, it is funny that that uh, you appreciated the brightly lit final battle between Shuri and Namor, and yet you were okay with the darkness of the Talokan scene. Yeah, but I think they serve a different purpose, because again, like I said, it's with. With the telecon scene, it wasn't necessarily something where I needed them to feed, spoon feed me what the world looked like. Uh, it there was enough um, flourishes of the world that they had introduced where watching it, I could allow my imagination to fill in the gaps. Whereas watching this battle, it's not really necessarily something that requires me to, you know wonder because mm-hmm. i'm just watching these two characters duke it out so in that case I, I guess it's more of a more of a technical thing just in 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 that it makes it easier for me to see the actual fight because again I, it's not something that re- requires me that i use my imagination to uh imagine great feats happening or whatever i don't yeah. know if that makes any sense to you but i think i get what you're saying it's yeah. it's more important to be able to follow action and yeah and yeah exactly uh when you when your mind can't see or comprehend what's on screen because it's too dark it, that's different when you're looking at when you know you're going on a tour through this imaginary city and even though you can't necessarily see every little nook and cranny in the city you see enough that your imagination can fill in the blanks whereas if you're 
watching a dimly lit fight, uh, it's harder to follow and it just makes things confusing and annoying. Yeah, it's just a jumble of like body parts and, you know, uh, maybe thinly lit uh, costume pieces. Just I, I might as well take two cats and throw them in a bag and just have them fight it out and just <laughs> view that. That might as well be my viewing experience. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. Those were those were the positives and negatives in terms of aesthetics on on my end. Um, were there did a, you have any other elements of the visuals that you thought looked poor? Because I, I felt like I had some things that that jumped out at me too. Like, I, I feel like a lot of the stuff with the planes whatever yeah. i don't know what those wakandan planes tech, are called but the those ships flying, yeah those they're they're yeah. those fighters those looked they didn't look like they fit with the world you know like they just looked like somebody dropped them into a over a background or something mm. and then the tractor beam effect i thought that looked kind of weak i don't know like yeah even, it, yeah it just looked a little flimsy to me um well now that you mention it uh, I, I mean, the tractor beam effect was something from the first movie too, and I don't think that was ever something I was a huge fan of in in terms of the level of technology that they had. I, I mean, I know that they were advanced, you know, they're an advanced peoples, but yeah, this is some Star Wars stuff. Yeah, and the the tractor beam just it yeah it just didn't hit the spot in terms of satisfying my belief in their technology of anything it might have been far-fetched enough that it you know uh dinged my perception or, or my suspension of disbelief in their uh <laughs> that's where you draw the line <laughs> <laughs> yep uh uh unconvincing tractor beams <laughs> it's outrageous <laughs> I wasn't super impressed by the uh, uh, the visuals in the final battle either. The one when all the armies were fighting on top of the. I was just uh, about to say that. Ship. Yeah. The giant submarine. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. Uh, I think when they have these big battles, I my two primary uh, uh, qualms with that is one. It always bugs me when they make it sound like it's a huge battle because there's like a line where Namor says, "I have more, yeah, more soldiers than there are blades of grass." Yeah. And then when you finally see the army, it's like, I'm pretty sure there are more blades of grass than that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, maybe maybe grass doesn't really grow in the sea, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Said, like. I've got more soldiers than there's seaweed in the oceans. Then, oh, okay, I would have been intimidated. But if he said straight up grass, I'm not a well, plant biologist, but I don't know. I, I, I mean, I still imagine that there are a whole, like, even in my backyard, there's a bunch of grass. So, like, grass <laughs> is plentiful, you know. But, but to be fair, like, I think what I told myself in watching that scene was. They did engage them out in the middle of the ocean. So it's not like, because at one point, Namor is telling them, in one week's time, I will return with the entirety of my army, right? Yeah. 
so so that we we hadn't gotten to that point but what we did get was the the wakandans going we're going to go out to where they are and fight them over there uh so that we don't have to fight them over here it kind of felt know? like the wakandans should have taken more soldiers though because they seemed severely outnumbered especially by the end yeah it well, didn't look okay. like two evenly matched armies it, it looked like it looked like it was a couple hundred Atlanteans or whatever uh, the proper yeah. name for those people is. A couple hundred of Namor's soldiers versus like a couple dozen Wakandans. <laughs> um, yeah. I, or is it just because that's... by the end of the fight, they slaughtered most of the Wakandans? I'm pretty sure most of them were drowned by that point. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. I was going to say, the the one thing that I told myself uh, to, I guess, make it more believable for me was, like I said, um, you know, they, they were bringing a small force out to engage them. So this wasn't a, you know, the, the whole of their army versus the whole of Namor's army. That It was trying to catch them at, at this flashpoint and it felt like the crux of their plan was we're going to kidnap Namor and put him in this chamber and, you know, weaken him and mess him up and thereby force them to concede to us. And that's, that's, so that's why maybe they didn't really feel the need to have like a huge, huge army or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will say, I will say this though. Like I do think that, the illusion of a massive army was better pulled out here than it was in Shang-Chi where yeah. like, you know, the Mandarin has this massive army. Well, I count like 50 guys there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you can actually count them, that's not good. Yeah. At least yeah, with this that's... one, the camera pulled back far enough where you couldn't really. Yeah. You'd have they to all seem the like little specks them. and dots or whatever. Like yeah, little... exactly little shapes of people but at least your imagination can tell yourself okay those are that's an army right yeah 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 but that being said i also think that the uh you know the cg work to make it look like they the the obscure shapes that were supposed to make up the 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 soldiers i i don't know how to put this because it sounds weird but even though they're purposely supposed to be obscured because they're just supposed to give you the illusion uh, of, of a soldier so that your mind can tell yourself, oh yeah, that's a soldier. Uh, even that obscured human shape wasn't necessarily done in a great way. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So there's, I remember there's this sh- scene where the submarine is there and you can see all of them all of the Atlanteans, or I'm, I'm just going to refer to them as Atlanteans. <laughs> that's what they are. <laughs> but they're all clinging to the the hull of the submarine, and they're like climbing up there. And there was something about that that didn't look convincing. Again, like I, I just had to tell myself, well, I'm just going to imagine that I'm looking at this from a great, great distance so that in my mind, I just know that okay, those are all soldiers, not barnacles. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To the ship, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What'd you think? Um, 
like what'd you think of some of those scenes that i described like uh atlantis or you know telecon i, th I, I thought yeah, telecon looked pretty good uh yeah. i i did think that the short amount of time that we were able to spend there in the movie was enough to whet my appetite and you know trigger my imagination which i think is ultimately what you want out of a scene like that it it looked interesting and wondrous enough that i could imagine anything that you know wasn't directly explicitly depicted on screen and the fact that we saw people and kids living their lives playing games in the city just stuff like that from Shiri's perspective i think it did the did a good job you know like it was enough to help me buy into the idea of this hyper advanced underwater civilization with underwater mm -hmm. living people yeah so yeah. that yeah that part did look good to me and the the art design and uh the architecture and everything yeah it's yeah. pretty good like the clothing that the people wore that, yeah. that worked out too like it actually it was very oh. stylish yeah i i wanted to sorry to cut you off I, there was one other thing that i wanted to mention but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll wait for you to finish but no ahead. no go ahead <laughs> when you mentioned the clothes there was something that i did think of that i didn't i wasn't super into either which was what was that that armor that dora milaje was wearing at the end the one that uh shuri had been working on the whole time oh the midnight angel armor yeah i think when we finally saw that in 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 practice you know like on someone and that also was something that just looked like uh an elaborate cosplay as opposed to like a real thing hmm. mm -hmm. yeah like i don't know what it was about it but it uh it looks good in the comics but yeah in the comics it's a great design yeah in the comics it's a great design i do think it's that was true from to Coates the comic design. Too. Yeah, that was yeah, from yeah. I, I think uh I want to say Brian Stelfreeze designed it. I yeah. could be wrong. I'd, I'd have to look. I do think that the movie armor was true to the design. So in that sense, like I give them points for that. But again, it was it just felt like there was something about the texturing of it that made it seem like it wasn't armor as much as it was, you know, maybe painted cardboard or something or like plastic. <laughs> I don't know. It 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 didn't convince me uh as it didn't convince me that it was I don't know. real armor. <laughs> <laughs> Does that really exist? <laughs> yes, it is a real fictional character. <laughs> uh people are stupid. I think I'd have to watch it again and pay closer attention to those scenes cuz I don't think that the I don't think that the armor bothered me as much as it stood out to you. Mm, I, th mm. I think what did kind of what I wasn't into, I wasn't into the idea of having those close up face shots of the characters when they were in the armor, you know, like that's what they always used to do with Iron Man, where they would show yeah. Tony Stark's face and the reflection of the different, uh, you know, the electronic systems that he was monitoring from his suit. Yeah. But I guess I'm not too big a fan of how that looks in the movies. And I 
didn't relish seeing that stuff with Ironheart or Okoye in this movie either. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know if that's really something to that. do with... Uh, I don't know if that's something that has to do with the special effects or just, uh, you know, the stylistic choice to communicate that information in that way. Like, I'd be it totally be fine just seeing them from the outside. Yeah. It might be a thing where it's played out too, because when they did it with Iron Man, that was that sort of set a new standard for that, and for that to be the norm now. It, I don't know. Every, I don't know if that every armored character is gonna have those cutaways. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I don't know, like you, like you. I don't know if that's necessary anymore. I was fine with that for Iron Man, but we're we might be in a place where. I don't think we need to do that for everybody, especially if we're going to roll out more armor people. Yeah. 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 Um, so there we go. Um, you, I see that you have a note here about the music. Uh, like, do you mind giving us, you know, just your impression of the music and um, what it contributed to the overall sensation of the movie? I thought the music was great, man, from the score uh, composed by Ludwig Göransson, who's done, I think he's done all of Ryan Coogler's movies. I could be wrong. I'd have to check. But he did the previous Black Panther, Fruitvale Station. Yeah. And I, I don't remember if he did Creed, but uh, they obviously have some kind of working rapport with each other. And then yeah. the the songs that were played throughout the movie were all really atmospheric. And I, I think they actually added quite a bit to the mood and just the general emotional vibes of the movie. I noticed that they actually let a lot of the songs play through quite a bit. Like I feel like in many movies, whenever we have some kind of vocal songs playing in the background, usually <laughs> they cut it off right before they have to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they still have to pay for it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but it does feel like they, they just let, let them play for, you know, a few seconds here and there, or we'll hear like a small snippet of the song. Uh, but in this movie, it felt like we were, they were playing like significant chunks of these individual songs, you know? And mm -hmm. I, yeah, like some of those pieces were really moody. I, I don't even, I'm not familiar with the artist. Like I looked at the soundtrack and I, I don't know most of the artists who are on it. I, you know, there are a couple names that I, I recognize, but there's no one really that I closely listen to. <laughs> but it was it was good to expose myself to that kind of music through a movie. Cause now, you know, now I know what to check out and you, i can fall down a spotify rabbit hole if, if i wanted to yeah 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 i really appreciated the movie it, um the the music in the movie because it it enhanced the flavor of it man and I, I also thought it was pretty funny when ross was jogging and he was listening to red hot chili peppers <laughs> yeah like that that definitely sounds like a ross song <laughs> really <laughs> yeah man huh. Now I'm kind of curious to see how you how you can explain that. Like I don't, I, I'm not super familiar with like Everett Ross as a person, but or you know as a character because I you know I didn't I I still haven't read those like Priest, uh, Black Panthers, but 
Yeah. Well, I mean, even ignoring the comics, just based on who he is in the movies that he's had these little roles in, I, I felt like that Chili Pepper song really fit him. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the white man's funk, dude. So, like, <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that pretty right. much sums it up right there. Okay. Keep funky. All right. Yeah, the white man's <laughs> funky rock. That, that's okay. him, dude. Totally him. I did, I did uh, uh, bop a little bit while I was listening to that because I do like that song. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty catchy. I I bought that album yeah. when I was in college, man. Yep. Okay. Okay. You want to move some... on to? Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was I was gonna say that. Uh, I want to go back to uh, the beginning of the movie because I I felt like that was something that really set the tone for the rest of the of the movie like just in terms of mm. the of the vibe of it the overall general aesthetics because one of the things that uh Coates that Tanahasi Coates mentioned in that podcast I was listening to he he said that uh back in the summer he was able to watch an early cut of Wakanda Forever and as they started watching it, he had to ask the projectionist to pause the film five minutes in because he was just overcome with emotion. And he didn't spoil anything. He just said, when you watch it, you'll understand. Mm-hmm. And after watching it, yeah, I, I get it, man, because I thought the opening scene where it just like throws you into this, uh, you know, really hectic moment where Sherry yeah. is, is like in a frantic uh, panic trying to synthesize the heart-shaped herb and you you know that T'Challa is dying, and you know you already know that he's gonna die in the beginning of this movie. But the the way that uh, they handled that whole scene, like it it was it was heavy, but it was also like it felt realistic. I think just in terms of or it felt emotionally authentic is what I want to say. Like it, yeah. It felt like when they were making it, uh, you know, they channeled a lot of what they were probably actually feeling, knowing that yeah, their friend passed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then yeah, and then uh, like that whole sequence in the beginning with the with the death and, and the funeral ends, and then you get the the Marvel Studios logo. And. Yeah, the way that they showed it without any kind of musical accompaniment, I thought mm. it was a you know really classy tribute uh, to Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing that I I thought was interesting about that opening scene, uh, and you know this this might be me reading too much into it, but the way that they uh, portray Chadwick Boseman's or, or you know, T'Challa's death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they right off the bat, uh, there's no real explanation. All you know is that he has a disease. Yeah, and he's dying from it, and they're trying to save his life, and and then they just lose him. Like it's all very quick, right? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I did have this thought while I was watching it, where I was like, it almost feels like a meta wink and a nod to Chadwick Boseman in the sense that 
you know, they don't say what he's dying of. They just, you know, call it an illness, right? And or or, or whatever. And it almost feels like they are. It's one of those it's things where anyone who has lost somebody can understand the emotions at play in that scene. Yeah, yeah. But I was going to say that it's it's almost this wink and a nod. It's this meta moment where it's like, well, we know that this is, uh, uh, you know, supposed to be representative of T'Challa's death, but we're incorporating this vague element of of real life into it because again you know they don't necessarily say that t'challa has cancer or or whatever it is that he's dying of but you can it almost feels like you can slide um chadwick boseman in place there uh in place of t'challa in that instance you know Mm -hmm. So, so that in your mind you can even though you're watching the story of T'Challa what you're witnessing is you know their tribute to Chadwick Boseman uh, in that sense yeah Again, like I, I don't know if I'm just reading too much into it but no there, I, I, I just thought it was interesting that that was the way that they chose to uh write T'Challa's character out of it you know yeah because because it could have been anything. It could have been, you know, a terrorist attack or an explosion or something. And it it's it says, I I thought it was a really interesting choice that they decided to have T'Challa come down with some ailment that couldn't be solved by medical science. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, and it's, I I, I think. I think that was intentional, and and that's probably yeah, yeah, one of the exactly. reasons why I I found it emotionally engaging. Exactly. Emotionally authentic. Exactly. Yeah. It was it was something like it's like as I said it was it was, it just felt like it was this moment where I guess life imitates art, or art imitates life. There we go. Uh, where they specifically went out of their way to choose um a story element that where they could uh you know put their friend in uh, and you know make it be uh just that much more again like you said authentic because it's it it is about the passing of the real man as as opposed to the the character yeah 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 and then it, yeah and, and just the way that the marvel studios logo slides in there with all the scenes uh, or it's just showing scenes of Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, as yeah. opposed to how it normally plays clips from all the various myriad yeah. MCU flicks. Yeah, yeah. And like, actually, that, that was a moment when like the whole theater was silent, man. Yeah, I was also gonna add like while we're on that note, just just the very idea that we don't actually see T'Challa, like they don't. You know, they chose not to CG him. They chose not to use a body double. Uh, and when they did finally show him at the end, all we get are clips Archival from footage. older scenes. Exactly, right? Um, I don't know. I, I in, in in an age where we have all this technology, all this film movie technology, I I find that a lot more preferable uh, in terms of my viewing experience. Yeah, uh, same here. Same here. 
Yeah, like I think it's just a more elegant way to address, you know, the the passing of someone within in within the film, uh, just to I guess talk about them and and you know whatever thoughts and feelings you had about them as opposed to using computers to try to regenerate them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I was, well, I wasn't worried that they would do this because I didn't think that they would do something too stupid, but uh-huh. there there was a, a thought that I had where what if instead of uh, ex- explicitly having, and th- this is before we saw that first trailer where it looked like they were having uh, some kind of ceremony to acknowledge Chala's death in the movie. But I was thinking, what if they just did some story where they wrote him out by not necessarily saying that he died, but, you know, he just went off into space and was never heard from again. Huh. And then, <laughs> and then you know, down the line, we could have the intergalactic empire of Wakanda, just like in the comics. You know, they could really, yeah. Disney could really uh, milk that for all it's worth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh... Hey, the the franchise is still going, so there's they'll find. I'm sure they'll find a way to make that happen at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but at, at yeah. least if if and when that does happen, they're they're not gonna need to come up with some kind of convoluted reason as to why uh, T'Challa is not part of that yeah. story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's always stuff like that that takes me out of it when they bend over backwards to like come up with like a casual throwaway line or something like as casual as they try to make it sound all it does is it draws attention to it in my opinion i don't know but yeah i guess while we're on the topic i do enjoy the fact that so much of the movie when you step back and really think about it i I don't even know if this counts as aesthetics anymore but I'll, i'll just bring it up so much of the movie doesn't have black panther in it in any way shape or form like there's chadwick boseman he's obviously more of a presence that uh surrounds the film right yeah but but we don't actually you know for the purposes of the story we don't actually see anyone as the black panther we just watch everybody's story as it plays out as they are dealing with these things so i did think that that was a a cool choice on their part to not to 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 go through so much of the movie without a black panther yeah definitely i appreciated that too i think it just uh you know fortifies the that tone of the film where so much of it is about acknowledging t'challa's death and it's about the aftermath the aftermath dealing with grief like those are the kind of stories that i often gravitate to stories that deal with loss and hurt and and sadness yeah 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 you want to move on to the acting and the direction or are you was there anything else you wanted to what are your thoughts on on those elements of the film um i I enjoyed a lot, quite a bit of the actors in it. Um, 
well i i think it was a mixed bag for me but i i did enjoy uh letitia wright she was good and uh what's it called angela bassett i thought she was excellent oh yeah she was really yeah. good she was she was exceptional uh, out there uh lupita nyong'o i i you know she didn't have she wasn't in a whole lot of it but well the part she was in she was just you know a lovable woman uh, i felt like I, she was in a decent amount of the movie yeah. it's just that she wasn't introduced until like part way through it yeah yeah um let's see da, uh don denai i'm butchering her name i'm sure of it denai guerrera guerrera um the you know the okoye right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um yeah i thought she was a pretty solid uh you know part of the cast like we've seen her in in black panther one and we've seen her in other things and you know she's just she's pretty solid you know like i when uh that one scene where you know she comes back after failing to protect uh shuri when uh she has to face angela bassett yeah you know you can tell that in that moment she's just she's heartbroken about failing her duty about not performing yeah. her duty as a protector and it's yeah you you feel that pain for sure yeah yeah that was a pretty heavy scene but that, that was good acting yeah um the one person that another person that i did enjoy was winston duke as mbaku he yeah yeah he's someone i liked from the first one even though he 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 also didn't play like a huge huge role uh or he didn't get a lot of time but uh the parts and the moments where i did see him in that first movie he he ended up coming off as a pretty likable dude which uh, you know marvel is kind of in this era where they're taking people that we're expecting to be bad dudes and making them you know kind of all right you know yeah because <laughs> <laughs> in this one he's again he's 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 actually he, he's got quite a few scenes where it's just there's something about him that makes me just want to be his friend you know yeah yeah exactly <laughs> he just seems like a cool dude it's it's not like he's jockeying for the throne once T'Challa yeah. dies, or he's not trying to like make a move for power or anything. Like he's a genuinely he knows good his guy. Duty. Yeah. yeah. Well, but the funny thing is, at the very end of the movie, like once everything is settled, he comes out and he's like, "I want to challenge him for the throne." So there's <laughs> it acknowledges that there's this competitiveness between them, but it's not malicious. You know, it's almost like a a brotherly sisterly sort of competitiveness. yeah yeah that you know familial I, competitiveness i felt more like a, a joke to me but okay okay i don't know maybe uh maybe he was i took it on face value <laughs> like, okay okay because i saw that and i was like oh he's just doing what he does you know it's like well if i can be in charge sure <laughs> <laughs> uh but fair enough fair enough yeah yeah but uh, I did enjoy him, and I did enjoy uh, Martin Freeman as Everett K. Ross. Um, I, I've seen him in a few other things, and I'm going to try to say this in the least patronizing way possible, but, you know, he makes a pretty lovable doofus of a, you know, doofus white guy. <laughs> you know? Okay, but, like, okay. I don't, I don't really know how, how else to put it. Like, that's just kind of his role. Sure. And, 
and even though um, he, uh, oh well, I guess he isn't quite a doofus because he does do his part to to help the Wakandans out and Shuri and all them. So he's he's out there, you know, putting his neck on the line, and uh, that does make him likable in my eyes. So yeah. there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh there's also Michael B. Jordan. He he had a quick scene in it and I thought he was pretty solid there. Um there's Dominique Thorne as Ironheart. If I had to be completely honest, in terms of the new characters that were rolled out, I don't know if I found her quite as likable as, you know, someone like America Chavez in, in recent Mm-hmm. Uh, episodes or Miss Marvel or something like that, but you know I was fine with her. Like I, I think there's definitely room for her to grow on me as as a character as an actress. Sure, um, sure. I, I just I'm willing to see more from her uh, to see like what her range is. Um, and then there's uh, I'm gonna try to pronounce his name, but Tenok Huerta as Namor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He's an interesting one for me because the guy does have range, but there are times where I think there are times where I see the flourishes of the Namor that I want to see in him. And there are other times where I'm like, I don't know if I believe that that's what Namor would do. Hmm. Like what's an example of something that you don't think Namor would have done in this movie? I think, I think, okay, there's a couple things. Early on in the movie, there's quite a few scenes, and this might not necessarily be chalked up to his acting as much as just how the writers wanted to write him, but there, there is something about how earlier on in the movie, he does seem like he's more charming, and, uh, and I guess they kind of smooth his edges out uh, you know, when when you see him taking Shuri on a tour of uh, Telecon, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but but I don't know if that version of Namor is something that I believe. It's it's kind of a softer, cuddlier Namor, and there's a part of me that just imagines Namor as just kind of a cold-hearted dick. Yeah, but. You could also tell yourself that he was just playing the role of a politician there because he is a king and he's trying to get something from her too, you know? Yeah, yeah. So and he may not have necessarily been completely sincere, but he could have just been comporting himself in a specific manner in order to be more winsome. But even even under those circumstances, like I think, I don't know that I imagine Namor to be a master politician in that sense. I think well, he... Well, what's more likely, man? Could Namor be a master politician or the owner of a multi-billionaire company? <laughs> I mean, I could believe... He was believe... a businessman in the comics, dude, so he must have been able to handle... You know... I could believe... If if that's the case, then <laughs> I, I'd say it's more likely that he be he was a businessman, if only really? because... We've seen how sociopathic most uh, multi-billion dollar <laughs> business people are. So, you know, 
if he was someone like Martin Scarelli or something, then <laughs> maybe I could believe that. <laughs> if he was just cold-blooded and heartless and ruthless in his uh, business endeavors, then sure, okay, that's a version of Namor that I could believe. <laughs> um, Dang, so but, a kingly Namor doesn't make sense to you? I don't think he's... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I imagine him as... Uh, I think there's a nobility to him, but I don't think there's any part of him that would ever try to curry anyone's favor, quite honestly. Mm, okay. Okay, yeah. that, when you put it that way, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I imagine if he was talking to to shuri and you know explaining to her the situation explaining to her um you know what takulan was right like and and why what their motivations were like i imagine that he would do it from a place of strength and and we do see that later on you know but i just feel like my version of namor doesn't have a facade he would be that way from the start to the finish you know True, true. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. considered that, but I also don't think about Namor as often as you do. So, yeah, yeah, you've given me something to consider that I hadn't, yeah, previously thought of. Like this was a, I mean, this was a version of Namor who was charming and who could be charming and who could be affable. And I do think that, uh, you know, Tenok Huerta did a good job of, uh, portraying that. I just don't know if. Again, like these are the movies, so I don't, I don't, I don't adhere to the idea that that's not the real Namor. This <laughs> is impossible, <laughs> you know. But I'll watch it, and uh, you know, in the back of my head, I'll always be like, okay, that was a good Namor. That's might not be my Namor, but that was a good Namor, you know. Right. Um, that's fair. Uh, the other thing. Would you have moment. preferred it if he had been clean shaven and didn't have a nose ring? No, I, I was fine with this. Again, I was fine with this version of Namor. Uh, this might this might sound a little bad too, but uh, there was a part of me that wanted him to be physically more imposing, though. I, I, I think that was something that I kind of wanted out of Namor. But you mean hey. you wanted a taller actor? uh bigger i guess like i wanted him to be physically imposing i wanted him to be more menacing you know like maybe he didn't have to be menacing all the time but when he turned it on i wanted to be afraid of him hmm yeah um the other scene that i was thinking of is is actually at the very end of the movie the very last scene where you you see him right and he's painting yeah and he's painting and this is after he's he's lost his fight to uh shuri right he was and in a pretty good mood about that he was in a pretty good mood and on top of that when uh namora comes to him and she's talking to him and she's she's basically saying how could you make a deal with these uh you know with these surface dwellers or whatever, these air breathers, yeah. right? How can you trust them? <laughs> these mouth breathers. <laughs> yeah, these mouth breathers. And she's like, how can you trust them? And in that moment, 
his entire demeanor it, it almost felt kind of sheepish because he was like hey you don't understand we've just made a great alliance with these people she, she could have killed me but she didn't she chose she spared me like that says great volumes about them and it almost have you ever heard that rule in politics um where where the, when they talk about debates where they say if you're explaining you're already losing <laughs> have you have you i, I haven't heard, heard that? that but i i think yeah. i know where you're going with it yeah so in this scene what namor is doing is he's he's it almost felt like he was pleading with uh uh with namora trying to get her to understand why this is a good thing that you beat me in a fight and decided to team up with us you know <laughs> where whereas i feel like namor the namor in my head would have just been like I'm your king. You don't get to ask me questions. That's true. That's a good point, man. That's a good point. Yeah. Like yeah. he would have just been like, this is, you know, this was the decision that I've made. Like there is no conversation about this. That is my version of Namor. Yeah. So, yeah, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. I, I yeah. can understand that. That's yeah. that's so, a reasonable uh analysis of how Namor should work. Yeah. So again, this this might not be my ideal version of Namor. Uh, I do think I do think Huerta did a good job with what he had, uh, you know. And I don't I don't want to see him recast or anything like that. I think that's what I was going to say. I think there were scenes, the scenes where he is mad at them, where he says things like. I'll kill you all or whatever, right? <laughs> you know, when when he's threatening to them, like those were there were some good scenes there. There were some believable scenes of menace there, but I think I just wanted to see more of that and maybe dialed up to 11. Mhm. Mm okay. Yeah, I th I think that's fair. That that makes sense. I feel like if we watched a a movie that introduced the Silver Surfer, I'd probably be able to uh, nitpick a yeah, lot of those kind exactly, of right? character traits as well. We could always watch Fantastic Four <laughs> two from uh, from from <laughs> I forget what year, and we can crap on that Silver Surfer. <laughs> I think that would just make me mad. <laughs> but that's what we want out of this podcast. <laughs> Didn't you hear? That's how social media works. Anger <laughs> generates watches and likes. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point, man. <laughs> but I, I think that only helps when you're making other people, when you're making the listeners or the viewers angry, <laughs> not when you're making yourself angry. <laughs> you don't think we can ch channel our inner Alex Jones and get them and like, you know, rile up the mob? into a frothy madness <laughs> so that they all grab their pitchforks and come with us. Uh, that's I don't that's think how you I know we're doing well as a podcast. I... <laughs> <laughs> See, I just overthrew the Capitol. You know that I'm getting likes now. <laughs> uh, what'd you think of the acting? Uh, I think I agree with your assessments, man. Everybody that you highlighted and uh, spoke well of, those were the, the actors that definitely jumped out to me as well. And I, I think I don't think there's really any 
actor that stood out for doing a poor job or anything like that. It was more just like an all-around yeah. strong effort. Yeah. I um, do. I will oh, say, like, oh. again, I do think Angel Bassett was quite good as, you know, as a mother who, you know, who's lost her, her husband and her her son and, you know, is in this position where she has to rule, um, is thrust into this position where she has to rule. Like, she had a strength to her that, you know, just emanated. Yeah, I, I think it would be fair to say that she might have carried that first half of the movie. Yeah, yeah, like she, for sure. She was a really strong presence. Like, every everything uh in the film like from the from the early moments where she was in front of the UN council and and you know really being a strong leader and standing up for her country you know and like making a fool out of these other nations that tried to steal their vibranium but yeah. also being like kind of gracious about it as well like yeah. i thought that was a really powerful scene <clears throat> uh, some really convincing acting there and then the more quiet scenes where she was just being a mother to Sherry yeah, yeah. when they were, when they went together to the, that little uh, campsite. Yeah. And, you know, tried to help her daughter deal with uh, the grief of loss and stuff. And that scene was really good too. Like she had so much uh, emotional range in her acting to be able to be fierce yeah. and tender. Can I, can I add one thing? Mm -hmm. I had forgotten this. But I, I just looked it up while you were talking about it. But I do think Angela Bassett has redeemed herself because she played Amanda Waller in the Green Lantern movie. Oh shoot, the Ryan yeah. Reynolds one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So she's by far better in this. Uh, like I haven't seen that movie, but I imagine that it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> you should uh, review that movie at some point <laughs> should we should no. we should we put I ourselves really through that <laughs> i feel like that's just a waste of time i think i did watch something recently like i was just curious so i played like a few minutes of it recently and those few minutes were enough to convince me that my assessment of it was pretty accurate it was bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, yeah either way i believe that she redeemed herself with this movie in terms of her comic book roles. Could I ask you something though? Yeah. I'm I'm kind of curious if uh about your impression of Namor if I hadn't, you know, just gone on my diatribe just now. I'm I'm kind of curious what your initial take on his acting on Tena Cuerta and just how Namor was portrayed was. I think like you I felt that the acting was solid, but the main difference is that I didn't consider the discrepancies of the character in the movie uh, compared to our conception of him from the comics. Because mm -hmm. to me, in the movie, I felt that this Namor was... it. I felt like they captured the fundamental elements of Namor, which is he's... Fish guy. <laughs> basically. But <laughs> it, it's it's the hatred for the surface world that really stands yeah. out. And the fact that he's a king of a nation. And like I feel like those two fundamental elements, as long as you like hold true to those, then it should work out. 
uh, in terms of how he's portrayed and how how they you know you know the stuff that they give him to do in the film and his role in the story will will work out as long as you adhere to to those uh, elements because once you do stuff like having him like if you remove the the hatred for the surface world it it gets kind of tough to mm. consider that Namor right like it doesn't feel like yeah. Namor if if he doesn't have some kind of underlying bitterness against the surface he doesn't necessarily yeah. have to always be declaring all out war against the surface but just the fact that he has disdain for the surface and he has you know this really extremely inflated opinion of himself because of his own personal status his own power yeah. and who he is as a man and what he knows himself to be like he's so he's one of those characters that's always extremely sure of himself even if he's in a situation where he really doesn't have any reason to be mm. it's mm. it's just that kind of arrogance born out of the belief that you are the best and the only one who can lead the people uh and defend them against the surface right so with with him in the movie i felt like that was always at his at the heart of his motivation to protect his people and just this extreme disdain for the surface it did feel like that stayed true to the fundamental aspects of the character once that was locked in i didn't really think too hard about the personality that was being displayed because the menacing scenes lingered with me far longer than the diplomatic elements of his character you know when i think back to the movie i think of those scenes when he's threatening them at the campsite or he's leading the attack on the capital of wakanda or when he yeah. has that meeting with Ramonda on the shore and he steps up close to her and, and whispers a threat in her ear like those are the scenes that linger with me when it comes to namor uh not not so much him playing tour guide in talokan <laughs> but but no it, i get it like when you when you point that out and i think about it yeah that is kind of strange or just the idea that hey he's really into painting yeah it's hard to imagine Namor being a patron of the arts. Like, I mean, I guess in this version of the character, he's he's like hundreds of years old. So I guess it makes sense that he picked up some hobbies. But <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> I've lived for hundreds of years and I hate everything. I have no reason to have any interest whatsoever. <laughs> I've done it all and it bores me. I find it all tedious. <laughs> uh. Creed. I liked Creed. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the band, right? I meant the band, yeah. <laughs> You're not talking about the other Ryan Coogler movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could have also been talking about the Image comic. They would have been both equally bad. <laughs> Creed, the movie, is the, the definitely the best Creed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Albert, I did have another thought about the interpretation of Namor and what I was saying about how I didn't really bat an eyelash when I saw him playing the role of a charming diplomat during that scene with Shuri. Because I'm, I'm thinking Namor, yeah, he's he's typically the kind of guy who's got his arrogance and his 
you know, his attitude cranked up to 11. He's pretty um, brash. He's very brash, very angry at the world or the surface at least and thinks Sounds like my kind of guy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> if if there's any comic book character who was your totem spirit animal, it would definitely be <laughs> Namor. <laughs> yeah. But he is he is also someone who is capable of many facets of emotion as well and one of the things that i was thinking of was that one scene from hickman in new avengers kind of towards the end of the run after he starts the cabal he realizes that they're getting out of control and he goes to dr doom's castle and tries to plead with him to help him take control of the group again and there's that whole scene where they're having this nice formal dinner and Namor doesn't really beg, but this is pretty much the closest he ever comes to groveling. Mm. And I feel like something like that feels like it's in character with Namor when he's speaking with another, you know, another person who's part of royalty. Someone and, he considers potentially an equal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Maybe not potentially an equal, maybe potentially a peer because he's also a ruler. So I could see that on some level, perhaps the fact that in the movie, like that, the fact that Namor treats Shuri with some kind of respect there in that scene, that's not necessarily against everything that I know about Namor in the conception of him I have in my mind. I don't know. You have any thoughts on that? I think I'm more flexible on that note. I don't know if that was necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I I still think that, like I said earlier, like I still think that. See, that's the thing. I don't know if. I don't know if at that point he's necessarily in a place where, he's been humbled enough where he he can admit that he needs someone right right so maybe if that was the stance he took towards the end okay like even then namer doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would admit that he would he was ever humbled ever <laughs> yeah yeah um that's fair well, i I, th I think it's more just the aspect of knowing how to be diplomatic when it suits yeah. his purposes. Yeah. Like, I, st I still do think that the one scene that really made me crick my neck, crick my eyebrow, was just the very last scene with him talking to, you know, one of his subjects, basically. <laughs> and Yeah. I mean, and, isn't Namora his cousin? Yeah, I guess it's his cousin, but, you know, when you're king, everyone's your subject. Fair enough. Yeah, and it's... It, it, it kind of... That scene in the movie felt like he was just trying to polish a piece of dung. Yeah, but I still felt like... It was it was kind of in contrast to what they were saying earlier when Baka was talking about him, and he was like, they call him a god, 
So, you know, if we're going to take this guy on, we, we have to understand that the people that are worshiping him, we're like, we're opening up a can of worms. This guy isn't just some other like tin pot dictator or ruler. Like they literally view this guy as a God. They call him their God. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for me to imagine Namor in this position, trying to, you know, explain himself to Namora or whatever it's not like i said it's not something that maybe on a logical from a logical perspective it's it's something that makes sense you know you know something for in in order to make the plot make sense but yeah i i don't know just in in my mind's eye i just don't see namor doing that it just feels like as far as he's concerned his word is law, and that is all the explanation that there should be, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Okay, got it. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's a thing that's definite. I didn't write Namor, so it's it's definitely open to interpretation, but, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had any thoughts about the general direction of the film. I was going to say, I don't know that I know enough technical aspects of the artistry of or the craft of cinema so there's really not much that i can say that doesn't just basically amount to it good or it pretty you know so Uh, was it good was it pretty minus those scenes that we described where some of the cg looked kind of off i do think that it's like you were mentioning earlier, the scenes of quiet contemplation were actually were probably the 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 better better scenes to observe and take in. So I do think that those scenes were probably the brunt of the emotional weight of the film. And those are probably the scenes that tilted my uh my my perspective on the film to be more favorable than not right mm-hmm. like i think any i think 5 seconds of uh shuri uh you know feeling uh pain for the loss of her mother and her brother and dealing with her grief 5 5 seconds of that is worth you know, however many minutes they put of uh, Atlanteans riding up on a submarine or whatever, like, I, like I can, if if all of the movie was just hinged on on the action scenes, um, the the quality of the action scenes as being the thing to tip my tip my opinion of it in one way or another than the the cg action scenes i can't say that they did that but the the emotional heft certainly did far more to to win my approval yeah i think when we talked about the first movie way back in one of our earlier episodes one of the big criticisms that we had was the action in that movie and I, I still think that's probably the case here too. I, I think the action is actually the weakest 
uh, part of the movie. And I, I wasn't particularly impressed with the choreography and the editing. Yeah. Like, yeah. for example, the final battle. With It's not just the fact that it's all these, uh, uh, you know, actors and CG armies uh, against a green screen uh, in the middle of the what's supposed to be the ocean, right? It's 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 not just the fact that we've seen that a bunch of times, but I think the way that that whole sequence kept cutting back and forth between the army fighting and Shuri and Namor fighting on that desert beach. Yeah. It, it just kind of felt like one of those things where when people have trouble choreographing uh, fight scenes, they tend to use a lot of cuts. So you don't have to, you don't actually get to see a smooth flow of mm. the action. That, yeah. That's what it kind of felt like to me. I mean, maybe they just really wanted to, maybe in their mind, they thought they were making it more epic by showing you all the carnage and all this, all these different people battling a bunch of people. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I wasn't, I wasn't too impressed with it. It was just kind of whatever to me, you know, like I watched it and I was like, okay, yeah, I, I get, I get the picture. I, I know what's happening here and I can people follow. Are fighting. <laughs> yeah. People are fighting. Exactly. There, there's not much to it, but yeah. was it entertaining fighting? Not, not super entertaining. I, yeah. I think the final fight, between Shuri and Namor worked out because of the emotional context, not because yeah. of any strong kind of choreography or action sequences. It was it was more just the emotional stakes at play, you know, like the the whole thing where uh you know they're they start off uh in the in the plane where she sets the trap for him and yeah that kind of evens evens uh evens out their physical capabilities for a bit and then when when they crash in on that beach it's it gets pretty uh rough and tumble there yeah but the the dryness you know it <laughs> basically saps namor <laughs> which is kind of funny i guess it's like a pretty undignified way for uh namor to go down to anybody yeah like you, as a namor fan tell me that you don't hate the idea of him <laughs> getting parched to death. <laughs> it's, 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 what's it called? It's a relic of like the really early days of Namor where, yeah, I mean that, you know, when, when you had to write every superhero with some sort of weakness, when, when that was kind of the convention of the day, um, you know, Superman had his kryptonite and Namor, uh, He's bad with salt and uh, humidity. Yeah. Or no, dryness. Dryness, dryness not humidity. Dryness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it does... Uh, listening to you talk about it now, it, it has... You, you did make me think a little about it. Um, and I do think that that last scene is pretty busy. Um, I am kind of tired of that thing where... Each boss has these lieutenants that, you know, we look different than all these other random blue guys that you can kill. So yeah. that means we're tougher. And then, you know, on the other side, you have 
Shuri and you have her supporting cast, but that makes it so that it, it evens out so that everyone has one person that they line up against when they when they fight, <laughs> yeah. you know? And then yeah. when you do this big battle, everyone, the camera just keeps shifting focus between the large fight scene where all the peons are fighting and the lieutenants and then the main guy. And it's, it's maybe there was a point in time where that's how you kept things, you know, quote unquote dynamic so that you could feed people short attention spans with different battles that were going on at different times. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm with you on that in, in the sense that I don't, feel like i necessarily need all that anymore um yeah in fact i'd probably rather just have them if they have to fight i'd rather just have a fight between namor and shuri and that be that you know yeah all that other stuff could have happened off screen you know it would have been fine yeah i yeah. did like the cleverness of detonating the downed ship in order to burn namor even more like that was yeah. pretty that was a pretty savage move i will say that one of my favorite parts of that fight was when she rips off one of his tiny wings yeah and he yeah, just gives good. her a look of like just sheer indignance the impudence yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i thought that was that was a great scene um, yeah that that was really good yeah and the whole thing where she finally has him, you know, at at her feet, and she's kind of wavering as to what to do. I, I felt like that whole sequence was pretty earned after everything that we saw in the movie. Mm. So I, I did like the emotional context there of Shuri wrestling with wanting vengeance versus trying to be noble like T'Challa. Yeah. The other uh far more far less substantive thing about the fight that I did like was at one point and I was not expecting this I had almost forgotten about it actually but at one point while they're fighting he says in you know his native tongue he goes imperious, imperious rex, rex. <laughs> yeah that took me by surprise i was like oh yeah i forgot that's his catchphrase <laughs> i think i might I, I didn't really hear anyone in my theater react to to much during the movie but that was a moment yeah that was a moment when i chuckled that that drew a yeah. reaction for me but if anybody else reacted they they kept it to themselves yeah yeah i yeah for sure for sure one action scene that i did think was pretty decently well done was the car chase in boston mm. i was i was good with that yeah yeah that's like two movies in a row where ryan coogler has done a pretty good car chase yeah yeah, I guess he he obviously is a director who has his strengths and there are just other things that he might not be quite as proficient at and might just be something he has to grow into or develop further. I wonder you know. if it's just the Marvel machine, you know, because you know how they they've said that... uh there's like a certain way that they like to film their action scenes and, and edit them and stuff. Like that's, I think that's why a lot of Marvel movies action sequences look pretty similar and feel pretty similar. That's true. Cause if you think about it, he did Creed and 
yeah. fighting is like a huge part of those. Yeah. And from what I remember, uh, other directors who... I forget who it was and for which movie, but I, I do remember other directors who said something about how they were in consideration to direct an MCU movie. And during the discussions, it was brought up to them that uh, Marvel has their own people to handle the action scenes. So they were telling the director, oh, yeah, you don't have to worry about the action. Like, we'll we'll take care of that. You know, you just do everything else, uh, which is kind of strange if you think about it, because then the director is not Directing. fully responsible for the whole movie. Yeah. Like there's like significant chunks of the movie that are just kind of like churned out on a factory from a factory. Um, but, but I think that's kind of the idea. Like I know that there's an element of it that's artistic that we want to see in 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 the product just because we love comics so much yeah but at the end of the day and and this is true of comics as well as the movies that are made about them but because it is a big industrial machine like that's kind of how they they've they've perfected the art of producing movies in a what's that system called that uh um that system where you have like a a conveyor belt and everybody does one section of it oh yeah uh what's the word for that like mass production yeah yeah exactly right because it's cost effective and everybody knows what they're supposed to do and but there is i guess some part of it that just saps the soul of the creativity a little bit and and I do think it does take the more creative minds to be able to find ways to break that mold. Maybe maybe it's not something that completely breaks the mold, but you know, in whatever way you can uh to whatever way you can defy convention, it's the good directors that do do that. Yeah, and one of the things that I I think Ryan Coogler excels at is making characters come to life and matter to us by making us privy to their internal emotions and the weight yeah. of their responsibilities and decisions. Because with Wakanda Forever, so much of this film is filtered through a sense of grief and loss. Yeah, it's it's really mainly just during the action scenes when we're jarred from that general atmosphere and thrown into the standard MCU product. Yeah. Because yeah. like when I when I think about his other movies, uh, like Fruitvale Station, right? Like that one, you spend so much time with with Oscar Grant in that movie, um, that you just end up caring about him. And it's that movie is about spending a day, uh, you know, the, spending the the last day of his of his life, uh, just following him around as he's doing Living. his everyday activities with no inclination that he's going to get killed. And as you watch that movie, you can't really help but feel a sense of, like, you're getting to know this person, you know? Like, he's he's a person, not just, not just uh, a victim that you read about in the news. Yeah. And then I felt like with, with Creed, you spend so much time with the main character there that 
you know, you, you're really privy to his motivations and, and the stuff that drives him as well. And um, with, with, this, with this movie, I, I think, uh, especially with the character of Shuri, like you, you really see all the seeds for her character arc being sown from the very beginning, you know, like from the opening moments when she's trying to synthesize that herb and then uh, later on in the movie, she has the conversation with her mother at the campsite, and then she kind of goes on her own little adventure for a while, and then her her mother dies, and then she has another funeral to attend. It's it's like all this stuff is just being piled on her, so it helps you it helps you get into her head a bit and and understand why that character would be angry yeah so so when she's got namor at the tip of a spear you know that that's a pretty big moment where she's gonna go one way or the other and i thought that whole the way that it was executed was pretty well done mm-hmm. actually now that i think about it the way that the entirety of the movie was structured was pretty interesting too, um, mm-hmm. because there really are only a handful of action scenes, and they're kind of uh, segmented off at, at pretty disparate, uh, pretty far off points from one another. So it really does feel like so much of the movie is just the character pieces moving along, you know. Yeah, uh, and the character pieces are the best part of the movie. Absolutely, absolutely. So, to some degree, like, I, I don't know if he's, if Ryan Coogler is some sort of genius who foresaw all this or whatever, but um, I do think that that was a good choice on his part to minimize the action so that he could really focus on all of the internal turmoil of these characters over the course of the movie. Cause I, I do remember at one point in the movie, as I was watching it, maybe the first uh, like two thirds or not even two thirds, maybe the first two fifths of the movie or something like that. It was a pretty substantial chunk before we saw mm-hmm. any action, right? Uh, before, um, I think the fight with the cops uh, in in Boston. Did you say? Yeah, yeah. But I do remember thinking up to that point. Well, there there was a brief action sequence early early on when we saw the little flashback to the. I think they were like French special forces that were trying to. Oh steal right, 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 right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I still felt like even between those two moments, there was enough of a stretch of time where it just felt like, I don't think anyone's punched each anyone <laughs> in, in like a while. What is I, this? We're getting yeah. story. <laughs> I was pretty surprised by that, by the amount of time that went by in between uh, the, the action moments. Yeah. But I think that's good. I, I prefer that because well, uh, I feel like we've said it before on, on, on this podcast, but, you know, the, the, the action bits might be nice, but without the emotional context, it really doesn't 
mean anything, you know? Like, it would have to be an exceptionally well-choreographed fight scene in order for me to, like, overlook everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that isn't to say, like, there aren't movies where, you know, the fights are fun or whatever, but it's it gets mind-numbing. It does, it does. Yeah. One of the other things I noticed about the movie is that it felt pretty much driven by its female characters. Yeah. 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 The most prominent males are Namor and M'Baku. And Namor's the antagonist, so he he obviously gets plenty of room to shine. I, I think they gave him enough development so that we could understand his motivations and the content of his character. Uh-huh. and baku he's it feels like he's kind of mostly around to provide advice to our heroes and just be like this i guess more experienced presence in in shuri's at shuri's side yeah and to some degree comedy relief <laughs> yeah 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 and, and then ross he's he's more like an afterthought he just kind of provides a little bit of logic to keep the plot going yeah yeah, at least, I, up, uh, at least up until the point when the political subplot gets forgotten. But uh, I want to talk about that later. Oh, uh, talk about what later? The political subplot. You yeah, know the, I do uh, think that's a big part of it. Yeah, sure. yeah, and it just kind of gets tossed to the side at, by the end. Yeah, but I, well, okay, I guess are we going to talk about that in when we go into the plot or the ideas or? I I guess we can I'm ready to talk about the plot if you want like some of the things yeah. that that stood out to me. Okay, so so what I was saying about the government subplot is basically I'm asking what happened to that whole thing. So we have all this stuff about the Contessa and the government talking about uh, stabilize destabilizing Wakanda, you know, like they're obviously the US government is obviously uh at this point, or I guess throughout most of the movie, they they don't even know about Namor and his people. They're they're still thinking that they're after they're they're still after Wakanda's vibranium, and they're coming up with these plans to uh, figure out how they can get an in or destabilize the country or just take advantage of the situation to get what America wants. But it's it's just totally left by the wayside all all that really happens is we get that scene uh where the contessa reveals to ross that she tricked him that she had bugged the kimio beads the whole time and has been listening to his conversations so he gets arrested and then we never really see what she does with whatever information that she gleaned we just see that Ross got arrested, and then at the very end of the movie, he's being transported in in a truck, an armored truck, and he gets rescued by Okoye. But then, like that doesn't really feel like much of a resolution. I mean, what's he gonna do now? Is he just gonna live the rest of his life in Wakanda as a fugitive? <laughs> like, that's kind of what I thought. <laughs> what What was the point of of doing that? Like, what? Like, they owed what? him a favor for <laughs> you know doing them a solid. Like, why it would have been pretty messed up if they had just left him in jail. Why wouldn't they just clear things up through diplomatic channels first, though? Well, I mean, I don't think 
as much as we'd like to think that diplomacy can work, uh, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm just too cynical to believe that <laughs> that's something that they can, uh, you know, censure their way out of or something. Maybe, but they kind of grabbed Ross just assuming that he'd rather live the rest of his life in another country than, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I I, don't, yeah, I guess I just didn't think about it too much. Um, as far as I was concerned, it really felt like the whole thing about the vibranium was really just it was just more of a catalyst to get uh Namor and the Wakandans to be I mean uh it was the catalyst that set them on a path to to be in conflict with one another, right? But yeah. But I guess you could say on a macro level looking at it that a lot of the times you, you could say that on a macro level looking at it that the moment that the special forces were captured and revealed to be uh you know operatives of foreign nations trying to steal vibranium from uh, uh Wakanda that that pretty much cut them off at the knees in the sense that in real life if something like that happened uh i don't i don't necessarily think that would stop everything right then and there but it would definitely put a temporary halt in any operations moving forward right like true, true. like if you look at you know places like iran or something where we have these debacles that you know are pretty humiliating to our respective nations um what follows usually is a, a, a length of time where you just kind of see the nation retract into itself. So, so I don't, I didn't really look at that plot point as the main point to begin with. I did think that it could be something that could be mined out in like a future movie, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if they ever decide to do a movie that is about the Western powers of the world or, you know, the superpowers of the world looking to get vibranium. Like it's really just the start of whatever that conflict is going to be. But I don't think I necessarily expected that to be resolved in this movie. That's true, but it's kind of a, it's, it's not a very tidy way to set things up for, another movie because I, I think if you introduce something like that in this movie even if it doesn't get fully resolved there should be like some kind of resolution or something that hints that something specific is going to to come yeah and i could even take the point of view that i think others might have who are harsher on these kind of things where it's like it's not even a good idea to leave these little breadcrumbs 
to just seed future TV shows or movies because that's just you're just tainting this specific movie, you know? Like Yeah, yeah. It it doesn't it makes this movie worse just to cuz you're putting an advertisement to watch the next movie or yeah. product. You know, I I don't necessarily subscribe to that theory because it's an MCU film and I mean that's what they're all about. <laughs> yeah, I mean when you're reading a Marvel comic yeah, of course, there are some that are going to be pretty self-contained in stories that feel wholly satisfying in and of themselves, but you can't get mad when something says, you know, to be continued somewhere else. Like, that's just how superhero comics work. Exactly, exactly. But it's it's weird, man, because some people get upset when story when these MCU stories do this kind of thing and seed for the future and some people get mad when they don't don't tie into (laughs) everything like yeah you know it's like where's the x-men why are they in this movie come on yeah Yeah. uh yeah i i hear you man actually speaking of uh the x-men the the one time that in my theater the one time that i heard uh a reaction from the crowd from the audience that wasn't just you know laughing at a joke or something yeah. there was that one scene in the movie when when namor explained his origins to shuri and he said that he was a mutant there was one guy in my theater that that was like oh jeez <laughs> <laughs> i don't think anyone did that in my theater when i watched it um but in terms of an emotional response i i think towards the end I, I do think I heard some people like audibly uh weeping or crying. Whoa. Yeah. They at were the very at, at the ending? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, it was it was pretty well, moving. Well, l- let me clarify. I I think that's what I heard. It it was kind of inaudible and I was like I'm like ninety nine percent sure that it was crying sounds, but I I could have I you you think you think it might have been tough to hear whether or not they were crying because you were crying too loud? Uh, no, I think it was just tough for me to hear because it just sounded like some sort of noise. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been a lot of different things. I I don't know. I just assumed that it was crying because it like crying was the closest thing that it reminded me of. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure it was just crying though. I don't know. Maybe we'll get a continuation of that government subplot and whatever the Contessa is up to in in uh, the Thunderbolts movie or something. But yeah, I don't. It, to to me, it, it still feels like a wasted subplot in this movie. I, I felt like they could have done a better job of yeah. tying up that or wrapping up that box or whatever, however you want to say it just i think it's a that's loose, fair it's a, it's a loose thread that that really goes nowhere yeah. i think that's fair i think until this moment that you brought it up i hadn't really even thought about it i was just like oh it, it's like one of those political thrillers where uh you know the unintended consequences of political machinations set the ball rolling for this bigger thing and you know even though there are these other players I, yeah, I just 
I just thought that their role in it for the time being was just done, and and I really didn't think about it beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it it distracted but, me because those scenes with the Contessa and Ross, and and those scenes with the government officials, uh-huh. they just kept up crop. They kept cropping up throughout the movie. Yeah, enough to be significant. It it almost felt like those scenes could have been in an, a whole different movie in a way. Yeah, like for the most part, they didn't interact with the main cast other than uh, Ross when Okoye and Shuri were in Boston. But or I don't. No, it was like they went to Virginia. see him when he was in Virginia, I think. Yeah, he's in Virginia. And, yeah, and, and that was pretty much it. Like, everything else was, I guess, like a phone call or something. But, uh, yeah, there wasn't... It just didn't feel resolved. Yeah. And not to get too uh, fanboyish or in the weeds about it, but didn't they say that she... Uh, yeah, no, they, I don't know if anyone officially said it, but it looks like... Contessa's going to be involved in the Thunderbolts, right? Yeah, I know she was an, uh the actress was announced as part of the cast when they shared who was going to be in the Thunderbolts movie. Yeah. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Yeah. Yeah. I did like Seinfeld. that one scene. Yeah. It w- yeah. It's funny to think that, that she was... it's funny to imagine that character being the head of the CIA or I don't what's her title? Uh, whatever it is. She's yeah. like a super spy or something. Yeah, but I did like the scene with Everett Ross in, you know, his kitchen. Yeah. And and Everett Ross says to her something to the effect of, have you ever thought that they might be doing the right thing? Have you ever thought, what if we had all the vibranium in the world, what, what we'd be doing with it? Mm-hmm. And she, I think she said something to the effect of, that's all I ever think about or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, you know, I like. I don't know about you, uh, but like you said, the the main thing that she's primarily known for is Seinfeld and Veep. Those are like the two biggest uh, recognizable shows on her resume. But seeing her do that scene, there that was pretty menacing. I was like, oh, okay, she's she's got a little bit of range in there. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I I did like that. I also thought it was funny how the Contessa Valentina Allegra De Fontaine was married to Everett K. Ross. <laughs> <laughs> that that was a detail that made me chuckle when yeah. they mentioned it. <laughs> was that the case in comics? I I have no idea. No, <laughs> like I didn't think so, right? No, okay. I mean in in the comics, Contessa and Nick Fury had a thing. Yeah, yeah. And Everett K. Ross wasn't, he wasn't really a a secret agent. He was a a diplomat. He really was more of a a bumbling. Pencil pusher. Yeah, like a good hearted one, but still nobody near as competent as the version we see in the movie. Okay, okay, okay. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about in terms of the plot? Nothing super specific that jumps out unless you want to talk about the ending sequence, which is something that I did really like. Yeah, sure. Um, it 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 came as a surprise, but after everything that happened, after uh, you know all of the conflict between Namor and Shuri, and uh, you know Takulan and uh, Wakanda, after all that being resolved, uh, Shuri goes on. 
<laughs> I was gonna about to say a vision quest. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of felt like she just went backpacking to Haiti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. She went. It, you know, she went to find herself. <laughs> it's kind of strange if you think about it, because her country just went through some tumultuous stuff, and she's the leader of the country, the princess of Wakanda is just backpacking through Haiti while her country is recovering from this massive event. That's the thing that was weird to me was so in the scene prior to that Mbaka comes out and he's like, I challenge you for the throne of Wakanda! And then (laughs) you know, he's like, she will not be showing up, but I'm here to challenge you for the throne of Wakanda! And then after that it just cuts to the next scene and she's just backpacking. So that juxtaposition was weird to me because I was like, wait, so did they fight? <laughs> she she lost. That's why she had to leave the country. <laughs> it, 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 it was a little jarring. I, I really like, I scratched my head on that one, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder, I wonder who M'Baku ended up fighting. Um, yeah. Like, if she couldn't show up, then who was he fighting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I don't know. I guess if you just take it as a joke, then it's, It doesn't you know, matter. It doesn't matter. Whatever. Yeah. But then what were they all there for, then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she just kind of thumped her nose at all the elders and their yeah. their customs and their traditionals, uh, traditional yeah. rituals and stuff. But I, I guess they tended to portray Sherry as somebody who doesn't really care for tradition, so maybe she's kind of a rebel. Yeah, she's she is a she is quite rebellious. Yeah. But that that decision to go backpacking while her country probably could use her, probably needs her at that yeah. moment. That that's a it's kind of head scratching if you think about it, but if you don't yeah. think about it and you just take it in for the emotional element, then it's I do think it's a really powerful thing, yeah. that ending. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it ends on a note where she goes and sees... Um, I forgot the other girl's name. Nakia. Yeah. And it, it was a scene that was alluded to earlier in the movie where uh, uh, Angela Bassett's character was burning uh, her funeral robes, but... Uh, Shuri couldn't bring herself to do it because I think she just had a lot more emotional hurt and the you know the ceremony and act of just burning her her funeral garbs um, her mourning garbs just felt empty to her right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and at the very end of the movie, she's finally ready to to perform that ceremony. And I don't even know if it's officially a ceremony, but but you know, to set these garbs on fire and kind of bringing herself closure. I think it I, is a ceremony. Okay, okay. I like because I wasn't sure if it was like an official ceremony or if it was just you know a symbolic thing that they were doing. But okay. I think it's both. A ceremony doesn't necessarily have to demand a whole lot of pomp and circumstance. Yeah, but I just meant ceremony in the sense that it was something enshrined in their culture. I I guess it doesn't matter. It seemed like it was. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, but as she's burning these garbs, uh, um, 
I forget her name again, but uh, she, uh, the other character comes out. Oh, Nakia. Nakia comes out and uh, she reveals that uh, she and T'Challa had a kid together. And uh, yeah, this kid is, is going to be, was hidden away because, uh, you know, I assume because the life that T'Challa led wasn't one that made it safe for it, it didn't make the time right for this child to be around yeah i think for the better she said i think she said that t'challa didn't want him to grow up with the pressure of the throne oh okay okay just live a life uh like a regular life yeah and what ends up happening is, um, yeah, it, we we get the revelation that she ha- they have a son, and the son is going to be. Well, I guess the implication is that he's going to be the next Black Panther. Yeah, yeah. Um, this exchange between the two of them, where they talk about his given name, or. I don't even know if it's his given name, but they talk about his name and how he wants to go by his father's name, which is T'Challa. You know? Yeah, I don't think he necessarily implied he wants to go by his father's name. It was more just he asked Shuri if if uh, she could keep a secret because his uh-huh. his give his real name T'Challa is a secret, and he's going by the name Toussaint. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that whole scene, that whole ending sequence was great, man. Not like it. I don't think I was like necessarily crying or anything, but it did move me. And you know, I'm, I'm I might have felt like it's it was one of those emotional things where maybe I could feel the tears welling up, but I was uh you know doing what I could to keep them inside. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Cause you a man, men don't cry. i think it was just more that there were a lot of people in that theater and i I didn't want to walk out like that or anything so okay you know if i was watching that in the privacy of my own home yeah yeah, maybe i just let them flow but yeah that that scene did hit me pretty hard just the uh it was it was just the right amount of melancholy and feeling morose but also feeling hopeful too you know yeah it was a good end note to it because after watching an entire movie where shuri just watched and not just watched but was constantly reminded of all of her dead family members to to end on this note where she gets something back is pretty uplifting um if I had to be, if I had to say though, under normal circumstances, the idea, the revelation of a hidden son, isn't something that I'm a big fan of. Um, it 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 does make me think of something like Nick Fury, where you know when they wanted to make Nick Fury in the comics look like Nick Fury in the movies, it turns out. <laughs> He had a long lost son we didn't know about, <laughs> and it just happened to look like Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> but 
I think this version of it was subtle enough where I could be on board with it. And, 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 you know, there's, there's also the emotional implications of, of all of the loss that we've dealt with, um, you know, with, with the passing of Chadwick Boseman and Mm -hmm. yeah, that's probably the, 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 the most reasonable way to, replace the character without doing an interdimensional rift where <laughs> he's replaced yeah. by an alternate universe version clone of himself. Yeah. I mean, I don't even look at it as trying to replace him or anything. It, it's, I, I think it's mainly exactly what you said a, f- a few minutes ago where Shuri, after all this loss, she realizes that she, found someone you know like she, she gained something yeah and yeah and and that's that's good enough for me like i don't have to imagine for myself oh what's gonna happen in like 20 years when this kid grows up and he can become black panther or whatever you know like that that that's that is like the farthest thing from my mind at this point it's more just yeah. the emotional element of the whole scene and uh you know the way that it was structured with her with Sherry starting uh, the ceremony on the on the beach, and then it just the way goes that to the it credits. Was an end credit sequence. Yeah, yeah, the way that it was in- integrated into the end credits, where you just see the robe burning, and man, I I, I can't believe Ryan Coogler made me like a Rihanna song. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> I don't even listen to Rihanna. Like I know who she is and stuff. Probably heard her singing the hook on rap songs like with Eminem or Jay-Z or something but it's not like I don't I can't name a single Rihanna song like I don't that's just not umbrella dude I don't even know what that is oh wow yeah I don't listen to that kind of music (laughs) typically like I'm pretty ignorant of a lot of pop music so yeah uh like this song though like I liked it man like it it fit the scene was pretty uh pretty good to watch in the theater I think and and then how that credits scene ends and then we we get the scene where Nakia comes out with the young boy uh, yeah yeah it, it was it was emotional man like it's it might be among the most emotional i've ever felt watching an mcu movie so i i definitely give them kudos for that nice usually usually these movies don't really hit hit too hard but i think yeah, I, I think I just naturally gravitate towards movies that or stories that deal with grief and loss. Yeah. So there, there's something about them that that just resonates with me. They're moving. There's, mm-hmm. you know, it it goes back to what we were what we were saying earlier, where like I could very much experience a a video game on film where all I'm doing is frothing at the mouth at the thought of, well, look at that spin kick, look at those lasers or whatever. But at the end of the day, I, I need the emotional uh, context in order for this to mean anything to me. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. I, I think that emotional context in the ending was like really, really authentic, man. And I, 
I guess it just hit me harder too, cause, cause, you know, one of my friends passed away earlier this year. So, it, seeing that scene in the movie, I don't know, it just kind of hit harder. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And I guess we don't. Not everyone necessarily gets a. I guess uh, uh, an ending, a happy ending, quite like that. After uh, the amount of loss that we deal with, um, so it is. It is nice to see uh, mm-hmm. that, like we said, um, after after the passing of all those characters, for her to get a little something back, a new yeah. a new chance, new start. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's a story about dealing with grief, but it's also about how to move forward. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when I think about it now, it does kind of remind me of the end of uh, Thor: Love and Thunder. Uh, mm-hmm. That that last scene with Thor and what was the name of the little girl? Thunder. Was, was her? Did they actually call her that? I, I think that her was, name was was it. I thought her name was love but i, I oh it I might have been remember. love it might have been love but i thought that was a cute little scene too yeah like a cute little note to end it on i'm i'm looking forward to my single father thor story yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's everything you wanted and needed that well, you didn't know I, I need a story about a single father thor who's also dealing with grief and loss <laughs> and they do that i think that'll be the greatest story of all time that'll be peak <laughs> fiction <laughs> oh man uh, right anything else about the plot you wanted to discuss uh i don't think there is anything else really okay For me, I, I felt like most of the story was fairly straightforward and uh, i didn't really uh like the stuff that we just talked about was probably the stuff that jumped out at me the most. Yeah. Um, you, anything you wanted to highlight? I mean, the stuff that I want to talk about is probably in the next section where if 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 you're ready to talk about like ideas. Yeah, yeah, um, let's do it. I think I think that was stuff that uh I looked at and was pretty pretty fascinated by uh over the course of my viewing but mm-hmm. it's it's pretty dense in that regard there there's a lot of stuff in there about nations right this just just how nations operate in the context of one another uh just the i guess the intricate politics yeah the the intricate geopolitics of this existence but uh, there's also the burden of colonialism and how it just kind of taints everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think that Namor's story is one in which the, their their nation is more or less a foil for something like Wakanda, right? Where yeah. they talk about how, you know, Wakanda has all this vibranium but it is because they revealed themselves to the world that 
now the rest of the world in search of vibranium has come and discovered them right and they have this history with the surface world and it's not even really the surface world because they are of the surface they they their their origin being that they were native peoples that were driven into the ocean by conquistadors so you know they they have an understanding of colonizers they know what what the drive for resource does to people and that's something that has burned itself into their heart ever since to the point where you know they've been living in relative obscurity for centuries and now that the world is actively seeking this this mineral this this metal they know in the in their heart of hearts what this could lead to so it it might sound crazy for him to go for namor to go uh and say that yeah my solution to this is to kill them all you know yeah like to go to war with every surface nation but again if you look back at just what's what they've been through I mean, I don't know that that's such a big surprise. I'm, I'm not saying that it's a right attitude to have, but it's not a surprising attitude to have, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. That definitely tracks with the comic book Namor as well. Yeah, yeah. He would have no compunctions about declaring war on every surface nation. Yeah, yeah. And... I don't know. It's it it is interesting to see Wakanda be in that position where they are actively living in the world that Namor is describing because upon revealing themselves to the rest of the world we're already seeing the the forces the powers of the world use whatever means necessary to try to get vibranium. So yeah. they have tried diplomatic pressure and you know and and shame in order to shame. That, I mean that's what it was right they yeah. they they had this giant uh, uh committee where they put them on blast for not sharing the resources of the world with them uh not sharing the resources of Wakanda with them uh, as if you know sh- again shaming them is going to be the thing that's going to get them to give it up but we also saw that when diplomatic channels weren't available, they were willing to attack, uh, you know, Wakandan uh, facilities to try to get vibranium. Mm-hmm. So they're actively living in this world where they that that Namor fears, but they've just they've just decided to to take a more, I guess you might call it, reasonable or a more logical track. Mm-hmm. In that they understand that they can't go to war with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, true. So it's it is an interesting uh comparison to have between these two nations. Uh I, I thought that was uh, pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. I I would even go so far as to say that Namor works as a foil to the deceased T'Challa. 
Yeah. No, yeah, that that was a, a thought I had too, where you know, here you have uh Wakanda without their king, and in the absence of T'Challa, we see another nation that is under similar circumstances and and Namor acts as Namor acts as almost this similarly noble leader figure that they no longer have that 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 they're looking at it's it's yeah, yeah i would say that it's namor, a good use of him yeah i would say namor is a dark reflection of what uh, a far less noble leader of wakanda could have been because i i think if i'm thinking of uh namor as a foil to t'challa then t'challa is the one at the end of the first movie, you know, he he had that uh, nobility to him where he was opening up his country to some extent in order yeah. to start to be more politically engaged with the rest of the world. And he did it in, in good faith, you know, like in the movie... It it was basically one of those things where he learned to uh, turn away or let go of that kind of cynicism, you know, mm. very much in contrast to to Killmonger's uh, means and methods in that movie. But here, I, I guess there's a similarity between Namor and Killmonger as well, and you know, both of them being foiled to T'Challa. And I feel like this conception of Namor in the movie, uh, he's he's the one who's willing to be a monster. You know, he doesn't care if if uh, the whole world hates what he does or thinks that it's, you know, like he, he had no problem with attacking a populated city and attacking all these innocent yeah, people yeah. who were just going about their business you know he sent his soldiers there and he personally rained destruction on on wakanda like that was just to send a message you know like he wasn't even it wasn't even anything where he had to retaliate for anything it was just purely to send a message and he killed all those people mm-hmm. but that that kind of actually does vibe with how i perceive namor uh, I guess thanks to all the Hickman comics I've consumed, <laughs> because he is the one who's willing to be a monster. You know, like he doesn't yeah. in those comics, man. Like those those uh, New Avengers comics, when you, you get a lot of the interaction between Namor and T'Challa, they're constantly reflections of each other. And and Namor is the one who's willing to muddy his hands. He's the one who's willing to destroy a world in order to save his own world. So yeah. it it totally makes sense to me that you know a movie adaptation of him would be the character who who'd be willing to destroy another country to preserve his own country. Yeah. It's interesting to to think about how these two nations are just so similar but the way that the story plays out it it does really play up the tragedy aspect of it which is you know, under different circumstances, these two nations would be allies and friends on on a more 
positive note, right? Mm-hmm. But the way that everything happens, um, you know, Shuri ends up going with Namor down into Takulan, and then um, Telecon. Telecon, and when Nakia comes to to save her, like, you know, she's just doing what she's doing to get Shuri back, Shuri and um, Riri, but. Yeah you know it's not the sort of thing that you can do with kids gloves and what ends up happening is a couple of uh uh takulan uh citizens end up getting killed as a result and that just sets namor off on his path and it's just this idea of again this this i guess it's this cycle of violence that is constantly feeding into itself um, all, all just from the the this the original seed of mistrust. So, yeah, that's a, it. Was pretty uh, pretty well thought out stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I will say this. Uh, there was uh, one thought that I did have. Um, you mentioned earlier that in terms of uh, one of the interesting things about this movie was that the 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 women the female cast was so mm-hmm. prominent in it right where mm-hmm. where all of the from the perspective of Wakanda all of the really i guess the meaty uh story parts were all from the women's perspectives and there was something that a thought that did cross my mind when I was watching it, which was the idea of Namor as kind of a pretty, I, I think the conventional version of Namor is a pretty good stand in for the typical toxic masculine, to, toxic masculine archetype. Yeah, yeah. So that I don't think that was something that they necessarily explored here, but I was I think there was part of me that was kind of curious to see if they would uh, you know, portray him as a misogynist <laughs> and a sexist, you know, cuz cuz like you I did read or I I didn't read all of the Hickman um New Avengers stuff, but I I read enough of it to know the dynamic that um T'Challa and Namor have in those comics and that's a pretty special thing it's a pretty u- unique relationship that they have uh and it's not something that I'm not saying that they can't recreate it between Shuri and and Namor like they obviously did it but I was waiting the whole time for her to s- tell him every breath you take from me is mercy <laughs> But I do think if you're if we, if we go back to that idea that you've mentioned in the past where, you know, there are certain stories that work best because they are stories that only specific characters can tell, mm-hmm. then I do think that that means that a story about a feud between Shuri and Namor could be different than you know, a story about a feud between Namor and T'Challa, right? 
I agree. And yeah. It'll the idea different. that there's this element of sexism to it was something that I <laughs> I thought they could uh, explore a little. I mean, they didn't, and I don't think I'm necessarily losing anything because of it. But I don't know. It, it's it's still something that I uh, ponder. Um, you know, I've read some comics where Namor is pretty sleazy. Yeah, exactly. Like. Remember that Bendis and Malieve Illuminati one shot? Yeah, he was kind of a you know a gross middle aged man hitting on White Queen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But not you know not just that. Like it it just feels like whenever he's around uh, the Invisible Woman, his whole thing is oh I'm yeah to bag you in spite of the fact that you're married. You know. Yeah, yeah. He he's. L- He's literally trying to carry her back into the ocean. <laughs> yeah, so he's not really a dude who... <laughs> I, I find it hard to imagine that he's a guy who who's very considerate of women outside of what they can do for his wiener. <laughs> <laughs> do you think Namor will show up in the Fantastic Four movie? Uh, that is... Maybe at some point. I don't know if that's something that they can just do right off the bat. Uh, but the Namor is primarily a Fantastic Four villain uh, or antagonist. He was primarily known for being a Fantastic Four antagonist all those years ago. So mm-hmm. it's it's not outside the realm of possibility that eventually he's going to show up and have this uh, conflict with them. I'm still hoping that if we do get some multiversal hijinks with the Fantastic Four, we'll have Chris Evans as Johnny Storm and (laughs) Michael B. Jordan as Johnny Storm in the same movie. You think that'll happen, dude? Like, when Uh... when we get to the Kang Dynasty movie... And they do a, their version of Avengers Forever and the Destiny War. You think we'll get those two alternate versions of Johnny Storm on the same team? Look, after Spider-Man, uh, you know, No Way Home. No Way Home, mm-hmm. was that the one? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure if Disney thinks they can make a bunch of money off it, they're going to find a way to do it at some point. I would not put it beyond them to do that. <laughs> Come on, man. You don't want to see that? I don't. <laughs> I really don't. It'd be so funny, though. Uh, I don't think they'd play it for laughs. I'm pretty sure they would play but it But that's for what cereal. makes it even funnier. The lack of <laughs> self-awareness, man. <laughs> well, when you put it that way. Because <laughs> <laughs> then we're not just laughing at the movie, but we're laughing at all the people who actually like it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And what's you more entertaining me. than that? <laughs> you got me, dude. You got me. <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> I want to seize this. Uh, yeah, did did you think there were any other uh, ideas or concepts that the movie was uh, following that that are worth uh, mentioning or that, that jumped out at you? Mm, I guess the only other thing that jumped out at me was something that you mentioned earlier on. And I guess you, you kind of did just touch on it again, but it, it's it's the idea of, uh, colonialism and just how what effect that has on on the world. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, we already talked a little bit about it 
but that that was a pretty interesting uh element of the story that i think gives it a lot of shading and really does help us understand namor's character better yeah there's a there's this one scene where he talks about his childhood and how like he he's long lived because of his uh his 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 mutation, I guess, or or whatever. You oh, call he's oh. a mutant! Oh, whoa! He's a mutant! <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. The the scene is, uh, he was talking about how he lived long enough to watch his mother die, and his mother tells him that, you know, that uh. She she wishes to be buried on the land that she used to live on, you know that yeah. she regrets that she she was not able to go back to it. So he brings her back to the surface to bury her, and what he sees is just, you know, people just treating people terribly. He he sees the, uh, the infrastructure of colonialism at its worst, which is, uh, a slave system in uh in place to mm-hmm. force people to to do plantation work and in that moment he just sets the world on fire you know yeah he just messes them all up um i did think that it was interesting that they uh they tied Namor to this uh want to say like latin american uh identity uh you know because the original namor i i don't even he was kind of his own thing right yeah or people or fish people like it it, it wasn't (laughs) really they were just generic atlanteans yeah exactly exactly but uh you know they they did their homework or I, I presume that they did their homework and they took elements of uh, Latin American culture and incorporated it into this new version of his origin. And yeah, I, I thought I think, it worked. I think it's a Mesoamerican. Mesoamerican. The, I think yeah. that's the term. I or I, I'm too ignorant to be able to discern like with specificity whether it's like Mayan or Aztec, but I, I'm pretty sure. It, you could at least consider it Mesoamerican. Okay. Yeah. I, I, okay, that's fair. Yeah, and for them to incorporate uh, all those elements into it, it was. Um, it's pretty cool. I it was an it's, interesting touch. Yeah. yeah. Gives it. It gives him an, a distinctive identity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did like that, and I don't know how true to this is, but. At at one point he talks about how like he says at that moment I knew that I had no love in my heart or something like that and that is where I took my name from Namor means the one who has no love in his heart or something like that yeah yeah do, do I, you remember that I think scene? it was uh, no love for the surface or something okay. I think that's what he was specifically referring to but maybe maybe it was just no love in my heart. Uh, <laughs> But I do remember the scene you're talking about, and that yeah. that made me smile. Yeah, exactly. That was something that jumped out at me too. I was like, 
That's uh, clever. I don't know if that's what Namor actually means, but, you know, I <laughs> yeah. want to believe it. <laughs> I want to believe it too, man. Yeah. yeah. Like, if they yeah. found a way, if they, like, dug through enough archives to find a word where they could, like, build a story around it, and, and it sounded, you know, close enough to Namor that it would all work, I, I, I kind of applaud that. It's like, Hey, good on you guys. But then again, yeah. if they just made it up, then eh, oh well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From what I know, Namor's original name was conceived because Bill Everett thought Roman spelled backwards sounded cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, uh, I just learned that today. I did not know that. You were today years old when you learned that Bill Everett named Namor Namor because Roman backwards sounded cool to him. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little speechless, but okay. Okay. I feel okay. like I maybe shouldn't have told you that. Yeah. Uh... Sorry, man. No, no, no. Not bad. I needed to know that. I needed to know that. I'm just... I'm just stunned is all. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. I accept it. It is what it is, man. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> all right. Well, if we don't really have any other things to discuss in terms of, uh, you know, the ideas or influences, you want to talk about, you know, where the story is going to go potentially uh, moving forward? Yeah, I guess one thing is what we were saying earlier about the U.S. government subplot and what the Contessa is up to. Yeah. Like, I don't know where they're going to pick that up. I mean, I feel like logically the right place to do it would be in the third Black Panther movie. But knowing Disney, it's probably going to be in some TV show or something for all we know. Yeah. Or, hey, maybe it'll just be one of the elements of the thunderbolts movie so yeah i I don't know i mean i guess that could make sense just because uh bucky is in that movie and hey he lived in wakanda for a little while so maybe she's (laughs) gonna use his knowledge to try and force him to do something for the thunderbolts you know yeah that makes sense it's possible yeah um, there is also the Namor, Namora, and Atuma storyline. Like, I do think that last scene does uh, lay the groundwork for a pretty common story that we see with Namor a lot, which is even though he's the king of these people, they seem to try to rise up against him a bunch of times and try to overthrow him quite a few times. Yeah, and in the comics, Atuma is one of his main villains. Exactly, exactly. So that scene in the end where he's explaining, you know, he's like, hey, Namora, you got to understand, she spared my life, so she's a good person. (laughs) What is this voice you're doing? (laughs) (laughs) It's Namor if he was a simp. So we have to make an alliance with them, Namora. <laughs> See, that would have been even better if 
Atuma would was the one in the scene cuz then I could see Namor cup Atuma's face in his hands and try to comfort him. <laughs> <laughs> but but when he was uh you know trying to explain all this to Namora like her 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 look was one of disgust. She was she you know she was loyal to him and dedicated to him and it did feel like for for him to uh, uh, for him to to create this alliance with uh, uh, Shuri and Wakanda, it, it was something that left a bad taste in her mouth. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if in some future project we get a story where uh, Namor is going to have to deal with the the backlash of his decision yeah yeah i mean i'm I'm kind of surprised that they uh had a tuma as one of his lieutenants and not warlord krang or somebody who's warlord krang that wasn't from eternals that's warlord crow yeah you're thinking of crow warlord krang he's Another uh, Atlantean. Can't tell my warlords apart, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Krang is is uh he's another he's Atlantean. An uh, Atlantean, uh, one of the blue Atlanteans. Uh, like the main thing that I remember him from is he was in the Last Defenders by Joe Casey. Okay. But he's an old character that showed up in Fantastic Four comics as well. And uh, I guess the thing that the thing with him is that he's actually been he's kind of like an anti-hero too, you know? Like he's he's not always set against Namor. Sometimes he's uh you know, like in the last defenders, he's actually working alongside the heroes there. So huh. it feels like he could have been one of the lieutenants in the movie, but I guess there's just no justice for Warlord Krang. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh well, uh, I'm I'm thinking what else in terms of plots. Well, we have uh, Riri Williams and Ironheart. So yeah. there's going to be an Ironheart show next yeah. year. And they uh, said that The Hood is supposed to be in that show. Okay, okay. That's an interesting combination. I, I didn't really think to put The Hood up against Ironheart. Yeah. They're not characters that I associate with one another ever. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see how that turns out. I was going to say in in regards to Riri Williams, it was interesting that they introduced her here and she wasn't really a character because in the comics she was someone that was pretty pretty heavily associated with Iron Man. Mhm. And you don't really get that sense of her in in this movie um yeah at she best kind of she's more of own. like a tony stark fangirl or something yeah yeah she she's she has her own like separate origin um and i guess that's similar to the comics too though yeah because in the comics she didn't start out by knowing tony stark either yeah yeah it's just that in the comics there wasn't really any connection in her origin to the wakandans right right it's an interesting direction to take her i don't really 
I don't know. She she's a pretty contentious character in the comics just cuz there were a lot of bastards that hated her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's, there's really no other word for it and I'm, you know, for her to get a chance to be uh introduced, I'm I'm glad that they 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 found a way to make it work and I don't know. I I was gonna say I I don't know if they found a way to address all of the issues that people had, um, but I don't think that it's the type of thing that anything they could do would ever address those things, you know? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, whatever origin they gave her here, um, you know, it, it's it's as good an origin as as any. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But it's. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that show turns out to be good. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I've got love for the hood as well, so interested to see what they do with them. All right. You want to make some recommendations for people who uh watch this movie and would probably like you know, something that would be in the spirit of this movie? Man, we've been talking about Hickman all episode long so again check out jonathan hickman's runs on new avengers and avengers and also secret wars to tie it all up because the stuff he does with namor and t'challa in new avengers is absolutely top-notch stuff it's probably the best stuff that we've gotten with namor i think am i right I mean, you've read a ton of other Namor comics too, but I don't think any of them really stand out as much. None of them live up to that version of Namor. That's that gives him an antagonist that's worthy of him. You know, we're not yeah. talking about Atuma or Warlord Krang. Like he's he's got legitimate beef with uh, Black Panther, and and you know. They're not small minnows. They're they're not nobodies. Uh, this is they're they're two pretty big forces coming up against one another. So it's it's the ideal Namor rivalry, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, it's extremely compelling stuff. Their their story is primarily in Hickman's New Avengers, but that series intertwines with the Avengers book and culminates in Secret Wars. And in Secret Wars. T'Challa and Namor do get a bunch of really good scenes together too. So I feel like anyone who is into Namor should read all of it. Uh, But yeah, yeah, Hickman's definitely done a lot of great scenes with Namor. It feels like anytime Namor appears in one of his comics, he always has these great moments. I mean, he shows up in, uh, it was either House of X or Powers of Ten. And then he, I think he also shows up in some, uh, an issue of X-Men at some point. And, and then, uh, Fantastic Four when Hickman wrote it. There's always good stuff when Hickman writes Namor. It would be amazing if he ever just wrote a Namor ongoing series or even a mini series or something. I would be so about that. I was gonna say there there is currently a mini series out right now. I haven't read it. I I am kind of curious about it. It's called Namor Conquered Shores. Conquered um, Shores. Okay. Yeah. Is that box? Christopher Cantwell with art by Pasquale Ferry. Oh, Pasquale Ferry is good, man. Yeah, he is. He is. So, uh, like, 
It's only six issues long, so I'm hoping that Pascal Ferry is able to do all six issues. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, essentially what I know of it is it's a story about... It's basically Namor's version of an old man Logan story. <laughs> so it's a story that takes place in the distant future when all of humanity is wiped out and Namor is the last man on earth or the last being on earth and just him reflecting on what has happened since I, at least as far as as my understanding of that goes mm-hmm. yeah do you have any of it no but i'm looking to get that in quarter bins or dollar bins if i can when when i get a chance nice or nice. at least because it's only six issues, I doubt they'll ever make a hardcover of it. So it's not something that I'm holding out any hope for. Uh, yeah. But, you know, like I said, if I find it in quarter bins or dollar bins, I'll pick it up. If not, I can always read it off Hoopla, too. So I uh, I, I do have that on my radar to check out when, when it's done. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Other, my other recommendations for... Black Panther in general, or the Marvel Knights run by Christopher Priest uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s, and the Tanahasi Coates run on Black Panther, uh, which was just from a few years ago. Uh, I think between the two of those, Coates run is probably the one that's easier to get into, especially if you start with the second half of his run. Like his run is basically like two big stories and the second story that he does is called the intergalactic empire of wakanda and i feel like that one is a story that is easier to is easier for a new reader to just jump into because the his first story i think is pretty dense and pretty layered and nuanced and deals with a lot of politics and it's more like a thought-provoking comic so if you're just the kind of reader who wants you know straight up action and, and a straightforward kind of story but a story that still has some subtext the intergalactic empire of wakanda is probably the one to start with but if if you have the intelligence and patience to to read a superhero comic that isn't formulaic then definitely just start from the beginning of his run hmm. Check out Ryan Coogler's other movies. He did Fruitvale Station and Creed. And all of those movies have Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, I love his stuff, man. Uh, Creed 3 has a trailer that came out uh, during during uh, my watching of uh, Wakanda Forever. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, I don't think they showed that at my showing. but Okay. Yeah. We yeah. got a trailer for Creed 3. Yeah, that's uh, Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut, man. Oh. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't realize uh, Kugler wasn't... I, I guess, what is he, like a producer on it? Or is he... Yeah, I think he's a producer. Oh, okay. Same with Creed 2. Uh, he only directed the first Creed. But oh, yeah, okay. I, I am a pretty big fan of Michael B. Jordan, so I'm probably going to end up watching Creed 3. Nice. Nice. Sounds good. Well, if anyone's got any questions, feel free to hit us up on Between the Gutters Podcast at gmail.com 
or hit us up on our socials at between the gutters on Instagram or between the gutters on Twitter. Uh, if you are listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, please feel free to give us like uh, five stars or whatever you think we deserve. We would appreciate that. Wait, very what if much. they think we deserve one star? Then. <laughs> Why must you stump me with these? <laughs> <laughs> If you give us one star, we'll we'll have to take it. But I hope you know that we will be seething with anger and vitriol if you if you do this. <laughs> we will swear vengeance upon the surface world. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we will come for your children and women. Uh, I mean, I won't. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, I. I rescind that threat <laughs> because I'm not doing that by myself. Any idea that requires you that you be uh, encouraged by the force of an angry mob. <laughs> if that's the kind of idea that that you're coming up with, then I highly encourage that you reconsider doing any of that. <laughs> it's probably a bad idea. If that's the only way that you can get yourself to follow through on it. <laughs> I like how one person, you, constitutes an angry mob. <laughs> an angry mob's got to start somewhere. <laughs> I am the embers of an angry mob. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Between the Gutters, episode 148. Next week, we will be continuing our read-through of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin with Volume 11. Peace out. Bye, guys. <laughs>